Suggested donation. You ready? You ready to go? You I'm ready. Caffeinated and... Uh, I'm getting there, yeah. <laughs> fuels up. Get, wait, where'd you get that? Uh, the deli outside. Oh, okay. Uh, I was like, did somebody make that here upstairs? Because we do have a nice... We do have a nice coffee machine. set up up there. I don't know if anybody's making it. We could probably, like... Ask. You guys need some coffee, too? Be like... I always need coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Students? Yeah. Chop, Ring chop. <laughs> yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Chop, chop. Let's go. <laughs> See, like, a, the fastest, like, middle finger <laughs> barrage you've ever seen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, that's it. One more cast for you. <laughs> <laughs> you got to draw the Lao Koon. <laughs> Twice. Double time. Front and back. Um, all right. So, why don't we get started? Welcome yeah. to Suggested Donation. I'm yeah. Edward Minoff. And I'm Tony Serenai. And today we have... Adam Miller. <laughs> thanks for trekking all the way over here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I feel like we uh, uh, kidnapped you from your studio. A little bit. A I little was surprised. Bit? I, I actually forgot that we were doing this today. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that we uh, our our podcast. Yeah, it's hard. hard. You, you get really lost in this go? like time vortex in your studio. You never leave it. You don't. You know. I, I mean, yeah. it's kind of a wonder. Like. Now with kids, it's it's harder for me to get those like uninterrupted spells in the studio. And when I get them, I like look forward to and savor them like nothing else. But yeah, you know, it's, the best, aren't they? Oh my god, I miss it so much. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, because I find like as you go into it, you build a certain momentum, and you just it takes over your life. You know, you walk outside and you don't know what's going on. People are moving. There's yeah. cars. There's dogs, and it's just kind of like it becomes so much chaos after sitting there and looking at an image that's just not moving. Yeah. Which I love because I've been trying to make more and more complicated paintings. And as I'm doing it, it's like I feel like I kind of lose track of where I am Yeah. every time I leave and walk outside. You mean like in life? In the world. Well, I lose track of the world in the yeah. studio, which is great. <laughs> and then when I go outside, I lose track of the painting because there might be like eight figures and light coming through in a certain way. And I'm trying to kind of keep this three-dimensional model in my head of what I'm doing. And all I really have to do is walk out the door and get a coffee, and I come back, and I've kind of lost a little it's bit gone. of it. Yeah. yeah. That's a hard... Yeah, I mean, I, I found... I was talking to another painter. I won't uh, name his name, but we were talking a little bit about just the interruptions. I mean, it takes a while to get back into the headspace of being in your studio, and I'm finding, you know, years ago when I was younger, I didn't really care. I would just... Whatever was going on, I'd, like, block it out, get right to yeah. back to work, and, you know, I had a deadline for a show, and I... But increasingly, I'm finding, like, I'm a little bit more, like, dainty with, like, my studio, <laughs> like, person, like, where I'm, I'm more protective of it because I have to be because, yeah. you know, if I'm, if I take a 20-minute break to go, like, move the car for alternate side parking, it takes me, like, an hour just to get back to, Where like, you were. Yeah, get yeah. back into the pictorial space, which is where I want to live, generally, this, like, fantasy world that I'm creating on canvas. Yeah, we're all kind of escapists that way. Yeah. I feel like if we were really wanted to, like, engage the world more, we probably wouldn't have become painters, right? Right, like, We're yeah. people that spent a lot of time alone in a room. 
Yeah, and that's Tear, tearing up. But that's also <laughs> exactly right. crying in a corner. Yeah, the, uh, the the it's also I think it's specific to the kinds of painters that we all are because I think the art world has very much become about something other than that. It's it's become about personalities. Uh, you know, that's probably I'm, I'm saying it's become it became that you know 150 years ago or something. But uh, I think the work is often secondary, and for people. Uh, who are awkward like myself, you you kind of grow up hiding behind your easel or behind a, a piece of paper and, and entering into this other world because you can't deal with the world that's in front of you. And, uh, you know, we get to fortunately continue to do that, you know, which is, is a wonderful thing. But then for me, it's about the painting. Like, I almost wish I could not sign my paintings, never have to talk to anybody about them or show them, you know, just... Yeah, hire an actor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to play me better than I could. I think yeah, that's I've actually... i thought about that before. I think that's actually been done before multiple times. <laughs> I think it has, yeah. A friend had a great name, Sandro Spumoni, that he was going to like, reinvent his artistic personality as. And he had a bunch of really, like, bizarre conceptual art pieces he was going to make under the pseudonym. And I remember thinking, like, oh, that's a great idea, you know? <laughs> then I had one, I was thinking, like, Helmut on Bottom Feeder or something <laughs> like this. So this would be, like, the new artist. Isn't that Salazar? <laughs> yeah. He's the hottest new artist right the, now. The Salazar Collective. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> there is something strange about it, right? Specifically with classical painting, where you live in this world where there's, like, film, there's photography. So there's obviously something a little bit obsessive in there yeah. that has to go for just that perfect quality of the image that you can't really make any other way, you know? It's like, it's a fairly subtle difference, I think. But we've been conditioned over the years to be able to see things in that way because we grew up on movies and TV yeah. and all this stuff. So it kind of makes its way into our psyche. So even when we start thinking about making paintings, um, I think whether you know it or not, it creeps in and you start making things that way too. Yeah, I think it With does. With that aesthetic you know? a little bit. Because it, it's, if you think about it, it's sort of like maybe backwards to what they did in the Renaissance, mm -hmm. where they came out of the Middle Ages, which had a much more sort of, I guess you'd say Middle Eastern, Judeo-Christian, sort of iconoclastic ethic, yeah. where everything was more abstract. And then as you come into the Renaissance and the humanism starts up, you start, things start to become more real. And I always thought maybe that was part of the clue, is that it started from this sort of architectural point. Like Gothic. Yeah, yeah. like Gothic, where the figures are all part of the columns. And, and like a little stony, yeah. A little stony, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then who knows what happened. You know, they ate mushrooms, something happened, and then all of a sudden, like, these things are coming to life. And it's a really interesting idea, because I think from... People today, maybe we come at it the other direction, where we start with film and photography and all these like very real things. Right. And then as realist painters, we come back in after years of training doing that. And we're like, oh, maybe now I'll put some design on this. Yeah. It's an interesting yeah. thing, though. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people take photography to be real or say, but that there are a lot of assumptions that come along with that that aren't necessarily natural. Like, you know, oh, completely unnatural. You know, I was just in Hawaii a while back and I was trying to take pictures of these like amazing waterfalls oh, yeah. and like these big valleys, just beautiful sense of scale on it. It's almost like a, uh, in life it looked like a Thomas Cole painting. Yeah. And then you take the picture and you look at it and you're just going, well, where the hell did it go? Yeah. <laughs> you know, everything's it flattened out. nothing like that. When the, the yeah. waterfall is all like kind of fuzzy, it's like velvety yeah. or something, you're like, that's not what I was yeah, looking at. Yeah, with layers of mist and overlapping depth yeah. and all this, and then it suddenly becomes this like flat um, photographic image and it's just looking at it going, this 
is not the real thing. It's impossible. Or like a sunset. You can't photograph a sunset. Yeah. At least I can't. I mean, maybe somebody can. Yeah. It's better with a camera. I remember reading Rodan talking about that, how when he had the movement, say, of the, uh, what's the figure, the Age of Bronze, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and he's kind of, his legs are beginning the, mo- mo- the movement. Sorry, I'm a little tired today. His body is <laughs> completing the movement or halfway through towards completion, and the upper body where the arm comes up is finishing the movement. Yeah. And he was really intentional about this, that he would imply time in a single moment by kind of continuing a movement through to completion. And I think that's sort of what you see in the Greeks too. You know, there's like implications of that where you have contraposto even as an example, where you're implying multiple motivations and multiple movements in the same pose. And that just doesn't work. Like if you try to pose a model like that, you know, there's yeah. like, you can't do, you can't do that. They right. just People, look weird. You right. know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are literally recording time. They're recording yeah. the passage of time. It's kind of amazing. So with your own paintings, because a lot of your, your grander paintings have th- these kind of more dynamic movements and contrapposto and everything. Are you, is there uh, a bit of making up? just to try to put the energy into that, to try to get the, the, the sense of movement in there in a yeah. frozen time, like a, a point that is frozen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm definitely not like a purist. I'll use anything if it helps me get the job done. I have yeah. no issues. I tried CGI before, which I was horrible at. Yeah. <laughs> I'll use photography. Like, none of it matters, you know? But in, it usually starts with sketches that I put together where I'm working out the poses and the movements. Mostly out of your head? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, out of my head and maybe referencing, looking at old sculpture a lot of the time yeah. you know I liked a lot of the pieces I've done recently I just finished one that was sort of playing with the Farnese bowl mm-hmm. and reworking that composition into a painting because it's just there's so many good ideas out there you know I feel like I'd be an idiot not to use them um, but yeah there's a lot of imagination that goes into it and especially the poses of the figures once they're worked out there's always that experience where you bring a model into the studio and you put them there and it just doesn't work and at you all. You just right. can't get that, what, what yeah. you might have in your head or the, the impact or the energy that you really want. So a lot of it, I'm assuming, is that, okay, you can sit there and I'm going to use you as a reference, but there's a whole lot of just drawing, you know, ho- hopefully relying on your drawing skills to be able to start really moving things around. Yeah, and I'll take pictures and stuff and I'll use all of that. And oftentimes I'll take a bunch of reference of a model and then I'll start to work on the painting and realize, like, I never got the hand I needed. So maybe my hand goes in there <laughs> or, you know, my yeah. wife's hand goes in there or something. So they become these weird Frankenstein kind of monster oh, yeah. creatures, you know? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Because yeah. I think that's part of the fun of it, you know, is like we can do that. We can push the bounds of believability and mm-hmm. still try to keep it as something we accept, you know? Because I was always fascinated by that with a guy like Rubens, for instance. You look at these paintings and they're so not real. They're just impossible. Yeah. But you still kind of get sucked in and you still believe it, you know? Well, they're convincing. They're, they're like, they're totally convincing. They're not real, like you would, that's how people look or how people twist or whatever it is. But there, there are these beautiful Baroque rhythms. They're very like maybe contrived or, or, you know, worked out in a slightly artificial way, but like it doesn't read as artificial at all. It's, you know, it's. He's putting together pieces, and I, I'm assuming that that's what you're doing. Like it's you're... what I'm trying to do for sure, you know. And I like the contrived aspect of it. That's another thing I've been kind of getting into. Well, kind of as like a stage design kind of. Yeah, and being kind of like I think comfortable in the stage design aspect of it, because mm-hmm. I always found like again going back to that idea of coming out of the Middle Ages and things are very stage designed. Yeah. And then the reality intrudes, gives you sort of a freedom 
to play with these things, take them in different directions, and to kind of go against one of the things I've always found with the American classical movement is it's very rooted in America, you know, and it's rooted in like our academic history here, which was very Puritan, you know, you have yeah. Harvard, Yale, Puritan schools. And so there's sort of a, this idea of good taste that mm-hmm. we have here that I really can't stand. <laughs> I try to have as bad taste as I possibly can, you know? Like, I prefer Bollywood to these sort yeah. of like, stripped-down indie movies where everything's overexposed and there's, like, a guy driving in his car who's a little bit depressed. You know, I like the song and the dance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, <laughs> like, 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 out of the nowhere, top. there's yeah, just like, a exactly. crazy song and dance. The set opens Which up. is all rooted in, like, the golden age of Hollywood, right? I mean, yeah, like, totally. Do you watch a lot of old, like, films? Like, what, what inspires you? I don't actually watch films that often. I mean, I'll watch Netflix at night sometimes after some wine, but I think I'm actually kind of... It's kind of weird that way. You know, I'm one of the people I know that's more inspired by painting and sculpture yeah. than film. They just always did it for me more. Something yeah. about that. And maybe be spending time in Italy and kind of getting an idea of what painting and sculpture could be yeah. when they're moved into a place and there's architecture and you create this like beautiful sort of environment. So yeah. it's the environment. Like mm-hmm. seeing a Caravaggio in, in Rome in a church. Yeah, and then sitting on the steps outside and yeah. having some wine and you know feeding the pigeons, like the whole package. You yeah. know? It's funny because <clears throat> it, it the painting doesn't change. It's exactly the same beautiful painting. It's just like you were saying, the setting alone makes it this experience. Yeah. So do you yeah, try to maybe, the idea of that, is, is, was there ever a thought in your mind where you wanted to make paintings and make an experience with it? Not just the painting alone, but the whole Yeah, the whole totally, ensemble. actually. You know, I just finished a project, which was a big Quebec painting. It was about the history and the politics of Quebec and the separatists and the people that wanted to stay part of Canada. And that one's going to go into uh, possibly one of the parliament buildings they're talking about up there, which was super exciting because that's what I always wanted to do. Like, I never had dreams as a kid of having, like, a big Chelsea show and pulling up in a limo and, you know, knocking the coke (laughs) off my nose and walking in. (laughs) You don't know what you're missing. I know. It sounds amazing, actually, now that I put it that way. (laughs) Let me rethink this. Yeah, hold on. I'm changing my story here. Uh, But that just was never appealing. You know, I liked the idea of making something that would exist in a place that people would live around and they, you know... Like in a public space. In a public space, yeah. And of course, these days, that seems to be mostly done by sculptors. Yeah. But it's so important, and it's kind of... I mean, like, in public spaces, it's, I think, uh, because it's mostly private, uh, most of the public spaces are privately owned, or a lot of them are, uh, and then art that goes into it is privately funded. It's they don't want to offend, and so abstract just works a lot better because it's hard to be too offensive. Yeah, it does, you know, because you think of, like, a Caravaggio. I mean, that, for me, it is because I'm weird, but for most people, that's not, like, a kitchen painting, you know? (laughs) You don't have the beheading of John the Baptist, like, over your, you know, your couch as you're entertaining. Or in the subway station, like, it's just, it's, like, people are going to complain that their kids saw the decapitated head or whatever, you know, like, people are, it it just, it, it... raises too many questions and Yeah, and there's challenges. a wonderful farce to it also. I remember seeing the Prime Minister of Italy make a speech recently, and he was, I think there was, um, maybe it was a Tiepolo behind him, but there's this woman flying with her breasts hanging out, and she's 
like right behind his head as he's making the speech. I remember thinking there's just this wonderful theater of like not quite being able to stay on message when you have art everywhere, you know. And was that Berlusconi? No, this was post Berlusconi. For him, of course. It would have yeah. been. It wasn't a yeah. painting. It was actually. It was just, it was just one of his underage hookers. Um, I'm curious just how you got, how you found yourself on this path to being an artist? Like, where did you, where did that come from? Because I think you started fairly early, you yeah, know, at, or early. kind of decided that you were going to be an artist pretty early. And uh, I know Tony and I had an experience where we were, I think, both similarly, like, really inspired by paintings and sculptures and particularly Renaissance art. And then I think both of us had the same experience that, art just didn't seem, or artists didn't seem like something that people did, and, like, any art that was being made was, you know, stuff that didn't, you know, contemporary art just didn't interest me at all. Uh, how did you, like, first of all, how did you find art, and then second, how did you, like, how did it occur to you that that was something you could do, that you could actually, like, paint, you know, fi figures and, and make... Yeah, you know. it started, um, I'd say, with comics. I think I wanted to... Something between comics and illustration. You know, I was, like, pretty standard American kid, reads comic books, sees Star Wars, all that kind right. of stuff, you know? And I th said, that's it. I'm going to write stories. I'm going to draw them. Yeah. And then at a certain point, I came across, you know, some of these like, fantasy illustrators yeah. that were kind of working in the same genre. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. You can paint. But I never really thought that seriously about it. Mm -hmm. And then I took... Uh, I was taking classes in anatomy and perspective and things like that from a local comic book store. Where, what, was this in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, right? this was in Portland. Yeah, And um, somewhere along the line, probably around when I was maybe 14, I, I decided, I, well, it wasn't that deep of a decision. I just stopped going to school. And nice. Decided I was just gonna draw. Yeah. And your parents were. It like, took them a long time to figure it out because it was a pretty big school, so they oh, weren't so exactly checking. Oh, so you just stopped out. going, and they didn't. Yeah, I just stopped going. <clears throat> Look at you. Um, yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. That's not like going. every fourteen-year-old's dream. It was amazing. I couldn't believe I got away with it as long as I did. But it too. wasn't like you were. I'm not going to go to school because I don't like school. You were like, I have this other thing that I'm really into, and I kind of. And you knew it. You, it was a little of both. A little bit of both. Okay. Yeah. I was just like well hiding out in the, the woods. <laughs> I did go in the woods a lot, yeah, because I actually, um, <laughs> the place that I would go to take my drawing classes uh, was near Forest Park, which is a huge park in, uh, in Portland. You, go, you walk up the hill, and it just goes for miles and miles, so I would actually go up there with my sketchbook and draw trees, and I started reading John Ruskin and his books on like, drawing How did you nature. find, how yeah, does how a 14-year-old in Portland find John Ruskin? Well, that came from one of my teachers, oh, where okay. I was drawing comic books, and so then I had another teacher that I switched over to who was a painter. Mm -hmm. and I said, okay, I'm going to learn from this guy. And he was a really interesting guy. He had um, been in prison as a bank robber. Wow. And while he was there, <laughs> he just drew and he drew and he painted, and got, you know, pretty decent after 12 years of that, I think it was, came out, and he was teaching, so I started taking painting lessons from him. <laughs> That's so cool. And he had a great way of, like, approaching teaching, which I really liked. It was very macho, you know, kind of like a real man would yeah. get the lines in in 30 seconds, you know, <laughs> you've been doodling at that thing for five minutes and you don't have your construction lines in there. So was, was he like, throwing in, like, bank robbery? Like, I have to be out of there in 90 yeah, exactly. seconds or less. Or the, yeah, you know, fast, you have to shower. dropping the soap, you know? <laughs> no. yeah. so, uh, so he was a pretty tough teacher, and he also got me looking at uh, 
got all of the artists of the Renaissance, you know, Raphael, the basic ones, yeah. the first ones everybody comes across. Right. He introduced me to those, which they just kind of stuck, you know, because yeah. I think there's something about that kind of art that for me was like fundamentally different than modernism and postmodernism and all this in that it kind of does everything. It's got story, it's got composition, it's abstract, it's representational. Yeah. All of these things are happening. Yeah. I feel like these days, for whatever reason, maybe because we're, we live in a scientific civilization, but we're actually not as advanced as we think we are, we <laughs> tend to make pseudosciences out of things. So we like to break things down into their parts and be like, painting is about the surface. Right. It's about yeah. flatness. Yeah. Or painting is about the concept. Or you know, painting is about getting an emotional reaction out of the viewer. And there's all these like, very simplified, kind of streamlined ways of looking at it. And the old art just felt so much more free. You know? It felt like you can do everything. Right. There's no limitations that you have to define your position and be like, I'm the guy that paints frogs, you know? Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> what's, just, what's funny is because when you're totally right, and when I hear that, when everybody's like, it's about this, it's about that, it's, it's about the concept, it's about this, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. All it's all of it. Yeah, and it's I'm everything. always like telling, like, well, at least for me, whether it's students or just when you get into a discussion with art artists or you know people who like art, and um, when you start bringing up, you know, what I do or what they do or something, and they start saying all this stuff, I'm like, yeah, that is important. And so is this other person's thing. Like, why does it have to be one thing or another? Why can't it be all of it? And, and that's the funny thing, right? And even talking about specifically the art we do, it's like there isn't one specific. You know, you go back to the right. Counter-Reformation, yeah. and they're making these big emotional statements to bring people back to the church. You go to the Renaissance, and there's these <clears throat> late Gothic pieces being made next to kind of homoerotic neoplatonic pieces. It's yeah. like all this stuff happening at the same time, and there's so many places you can go with it. You know, that's why I think history is so important yeah. because it shows you all these different ideas that have existed over the years, yeah. which people don't really want you to look at those ideas in any given society, right? Because of course they want to keep society functioning, people not killing each other, the trains running on time. Yeah. And so I think they try to make a certain conformity as part of that. It's like an inherent part of society, you know? There has to be a certain conformity of expectations. It sounds almost like fascism. <laughs> it, but I think there's elements of fascism in yeah. every society, you know? It's how everybody kind of does the same thing. We all wear the same kind of similar clothes. Yeah. You know? Nobody's out there very often. Well, I saw a guy in New York, a so yeah, never mind. Yeah, on the subway today, but he looked like a banana. He was like older. He had a wandering eye. It was really interesting. <laughs> and his hair was like slicked back. It was so bizarre. It was mm -hmm. fresh. And it was really dirty, too, his banana suit. <laughs> Maybe not oh, so that's, fresh. That's what makes it an authentic banana suit, right? Yeah, like exactly. It's too clean. It's <laughs> not organic. <laughs> yeah, but I think that is part of it, you know? And I, it's going away now. Like, I've heard you guys talk with people about this before. When I started in the 90s, it just felt so much more closed. Mm. You know, I felt like the art world was more closed. Mm -hmm. The classical art world was more closed. Everything had these, like, hard lines. People love around. to draw lines around things. Yeah, they love to draw lines, don't they? <laughs> yeah, and artificial concepts that you can fight about. Yeah. Do you remember reading? I don't even remember what it is. I slept so badly last night. My memory <laughs> shot. But there was... Uh, Goethe was in Italy, and he went to a debate. He was invited to one of the academies, and they had a debate about art. I think it was maybe as inspiration or technique. I'll just call this some bogus mm -hmm. version of it anyway. Which one's more important? And he summed it up by saying, oh, that's the best argument ever because 
if you separate them into opposing sides, you can argue it forever and ever and never have an end to it because they're both important. Right. And I think that's the same thing that I found like going into the classical movement in the 90s and then coming out and seeing where it's going now. It just seems so much more rich and open and being informed by different places, you know, right. from like illustration and comics and even contemporary art, you know, yeah, yeah. that stuff. Yeah, you're starting <laughs> to see a lot more of that, like the illustration, I think, uh, was shunned in the 90s, maybe, and I think a lot of people are kind of opening up to that. Um, well, so you start seeing some of that stuff was actually beautifully done, and there was some really, there was some amazing talent. And, you know, sometimes just recognizing that alone is just like, oh, that's cool. Well, also yeah. all that renaissance or most of that renaissance art was Technically essentially like advertising, mm-hmm. you know, illustration for advertising the church or, you or know. The power of a, you know. Or the Medicis. Or yeah. <laughs> and there's some propaganda involved. Yeah. And that's all interesting to me, too, because I don't think you can escape that, really. You know, you even go into Chelsea galleries and it's full of propaganda. Sure. For a particular set of ideas oh, that yeah, the yeah. artist is promoting with the concept. You know, usually it's a pretty safe set of ideas that aren't going to offend the Chelsea set too much you know it's like I think we can't escape that even that we have to kind of embrace it that as artists there is that element of propaganda that comes into our work you know there's that narrative once you bring narrative and reality into it anyway it's going to be read right as having some kind of an agenda which is why it's so hard to have figurative work in public spaces because then not everybody's going to agree with the agenda and then you get you know you basically can't find people who are willing to support that it's yeah, very hard it's risky, to. you know, and I yeah. feel like a lot of politicians probably don't want to take the risk on painting. No, I mean, they're yeah. so careful. Like, they, yeah, exactly. Like, painting's not the place. No, gonna... I mean, if we were slipping them billions of dollars in kickbacks, I'm yeah. sure, you know, that would all change. We, we just need the billions of dollars to start yeah, slipping. we just need lobbyists. The whole <laughs> yeah. idea of galleries and museums really started with the French uh, Revolution. You know, they started mm-hmm. taking the paintings out of churches and out of public buildings, and fortunately, they didn't do what they did in, like, the Reformation and just smash them. Yeah, they put them in big museums, them. you know? Right. They're like, let's keep these things because they're great, but let's take the meaning away from them and put them in one big building in Paris, and everybody will just look at them as, like, artifacts now. But I think part of that that's interesting is at that moment, that's when you started to really get museums. And then galleries came up in the French 19th century in France as well. So there's still this sort of weird Oedipal complex, specifically about the 19th century in France, that I think is you see it playing out today in the contemporary art world as well. It's like you look at their narrative, because every kind of society that we can look at and say there's even something tying this group together, as you call them, the art world. That was their original villain, right? They had Bouguereau, they had Messonnier, yeah. and these guys have been there as like the parent figures that they have to, you know, slay. Rebel against, yeah. For years, and I think because of that, it's like they, these figures stay very charged today, and they also keep coming up in artists that do want to paint like that. Yeah. You know, you see young artists today seem to be looking more at those guys than yeah, they yeah. are at the older artists. Even, right. You know? I remember uh, I had dinner with my, um, my stepfather, who was kind of in the modern art world and he you know the very first time I mentioned Bouguereau like when I had first learned about him he was just like you know like oh well of course you like Bouguereau it's a lot of naked ladies you know <laughs> yeah and uh, that's not to like <laughs> yeah that's basically that was his comment but also kind of you know dismissive of it and you know later you know years later I thought of revisiting that conversation and you know it was the I think the, the ground had sort of shifted and it was not like it wasn't a, an embarrassing thing to say you like Bouguereau, which uh, it had been. You know, yeah, like that I think was held really up was. in my art history classes as like, 
that's really like just sugar. I think uh, Sargent even described Bouguereau as sugar and varnish. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good, actually. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? And so that became so charged that it continually keeps bubbling up because you can't, because it, it has that importance. And I think that's what we're still seeing out there, which fortunately is going away in a weird way. Um, like I noticed the same thing with this painting I just did that was about the separatist movement in Quebec. The younger generation doesn't really seem to give a shit one way or the other. You know, it's like yeah. previous generations were fighting about this. Are we going to be French? Are we going to be part of Canada? And like, what does that mean? To what degree will we be, be both? And it seems to have gone away. And I'm wondering if that's kind of what's happening now. Oh yeah, with the larger, yeah, you know, because yeah. you see the same with the media, and you see like newspapers going down and losing their revenue and losing some of their power. It's like in a way, those old fights were kind of 20th century fights. Yeah. And now they're disappearing and they're being created. Like, we're in this wonderful moment where it's just, well, wonderful, depending <laughs> on how you look at it. But it's just chaos now. Well, right. Yeah. I think yeah. it's harder to be a gatekeeper because, you know, the internet allows for people to circumvent your gate. So, you you know, you put up a gate and say, like, there's just not going to be any, you know, any of that Bougaro crap here. And then, you know, all of a sudden you have social media and you've got people like flocking to Bouguereau, you know, works or, you know, just as an example. Yeah. And then not only do they discover it, but they discover it like a 14 year old discovers a dime bag, you know, it's like something that feels a little forbidden, <laughs> a little you know, <laughs> yeah. which makes it so much more interesting. That peasant girl with her <laughs> broken vase. Yeah. And I think that's been the dance of the 20th century, right? It's like, you can, these things are kind of on the margins. They're sort of disreputable. And there was even like an, an appeal in taking up that thing that's, you know, considered oh, yeah. kind of like, ooh, you know. Yeah, it felt a little insurgent to, <laughs> yeah, to like yeah. that stuff. And well, now that insurgency is kind of coming to an end, so yeah. it can become, I mean, God save it if it becomes mainstream, but that might happen, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I don't see that. I always think it's going to yeah, happen. It doesn't seem like that. I mean, probably for better and worse. But uh, I, I would get nervous if it did become mainstream, because I think like anything else, it would come in and go out of fashion as quickly as any other trend. And I would be sad to see it get all this recognition and love from everybody and then also maybe go away. I don't know if it yeah. would. I mean, you can always say, well, it's, you know, if you believe in something, it'll be, be around. And everybody, we, we, we always had this idea that, no, everybody will discover it and all of a sudden it'll be like forever <laughs> great. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know if that's true. You know? Yeah, like, it's an interesting thing. You know, I just had a conversation with Donald Cuspid a while back about it and he had this interesting take on why he doesn't think it'll ever go mainstream, which was describing the art world. You're dealing with like an industry worth multiple billions right, of dollars. Right, yeah, capital know? markets. and yeah, yeah, it's a whole different setup. And if you look at something like what we're doing, I think part of the beauty of it comes from the fact that it's more of a community, which is set up on totally different rules, and the two are like oil and water and don't really blend very well. Yeah. And the beauty of the communal aspect of it is it tends to be people who are like practicing it and invested in it. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's like a sharpness of eye that comes from that, you know, when people speak a common language and they get together and they can look at each other's paintings and see things that are great, maybe not working so much. And there's this like intense criticism Yeah. where once you become, I think like a corporate industry, like yeah. the rest of the art world has become, a lot of that goes out the window because now the standards are totally different, right? Now you're dealing with standards of money, press, how much noise can you generate? Yeah. Where in a community, it seems different, right? Because it's almost not good manners to generate that much noise. There's right. still this sort of like, we're all in this together kind of a feel. You know? Yeah. There's also, I mean, as a commodity, it's terrible. It takes you, I mean, how long <laughs> did you spend on your Quebec painting? 
painting was a year, and that's not counting planning. <laughs> yeah, coming yeah. Up with the idea. That's just physically like, laying the paint if, on the yeah, canvas. If I'm a gallerist, I, I want nothing to do yeah. with that. You yeah, know? it's and, impossible. I mean, I think we learn as artists. I know Tony learned that you take a big commission, and it's it's financially the worst decision the you've worst. ever made you know when you yeah. do the math you're like oh, when you do a, you know totally, the yeah. annual show and you're doing 30 paintings a year that's like that's a much better decision financially but you know it's not fulfilling necessarily it might be fulfilling for some people yeah it's a difficult model you know especially if you're really wanting to push yourself and make something that like each painting you make hopefully goes a little bit beyond the one you did before on some right. level. The gallery model is brutal because that's, you start to feel, I mean, you can you start to feel like you're just turning them out. Well, you have to, I think you, you know, my experience with it, because I was doing that for a long time, was, you know, to really, like, put all my eggs in a couple baskets, you know, so I would do what I'd call, like, anchor paintings. And then, you know, there'd be a whole lot of studies filling, filling the, um, filling the, the gallery wall. But uh, it's, you know, there were, three or four major paintings that, you know, most of my time went towards those. And, you know, then there are all the, the sketches, you know, whatever studies, I'm sure for your Quebec yeah. painting, you have tons of studies. Too many. <laughs> <laughs> Do you show those or? Well, um, I'm thinking about it. You know, I might actually show it again. It's a little bit of a tricky thing because if I show it again in New York before it goes to Quebec, it's just so damn big that every time I move it, I have to unstretch it. Oh man! Take oh, the stretchers really? apart, move it, restretch it in the next place. So the oh, more I move it, the hell out of me. you start to notice that you know the canvas can only take yeah. so many stretchings and restretchings and unstretchings. So I'm getting very kind of yeah. uh, calculated. How big is it? It's about nine by ten feet. Nice. Now, is there a way, I know it would get very expensive, but just to move it without taking it apart? Literally no way out of the building. Like, I can't get it out of my door of my yeah. studio without taking the whole thing apart. Yeah, um, I could remove all the windows, probably. And then You have to go see Simon Liu. He makes a uh, like the folding stretcher bar. Oh, yeah. yeah, what I did on this one, it actually comes in half. Oh, yeah. And there's the folding ones, too, actually. I've seen those. My wife uses those on some of her larger pieces. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I figured on this one I would just take the whole thing apart because it's, you know, after a year of work, too, you start to get a little paranoid. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like moving it with the folding stretcher bars, you know, what could possibly... Well, those, I mean, I don't know, the ones I've seen, like it, it, uh, like there's a... It's not folded. The painting itself is is kind of draped in a, at a like a safe angle or something. And yeah, and you put in like the tube in the middle to keep it from right. Uh, exactly, from and then the bending. the stretcher actually protects the painting. It acts as like a barrier. Yeah, that might be an idea. Although the next one I'm working on the plan now is going to be probably three pieces, and I want each one to be eleven by sixteen on the sides. Wow. And eleven by eight in the middle. And so that's a whole other problem. I'm thinking about that one now. Like, oh am I going to have to break the stretchers into four pieces, five pieces? But I'm really into that project because... Um, or just get a double door in your studio. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of these warehouses in Brooklyn, so yeah, maybe just blow the wall yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> Replace it with a garage door. <laughs> so is that a commission that you're working on, the, this new one? Uh, not yet, no. That's a tough thing. I mean, that's another thing is just as, an, uh, you know, trying to live life like 
be able to like feed yourself and pay your studio rent like you need yeah. like for something some big project like that it's uh, yeah it's tricky you know I have a few people that have in, express, expressed some interest in kind of investing in it yeah so I'm thinking maybe that's the only way to do it kind of develop it a little bit show it to them and see if you can get some support yeah and see if the idea comes together in a way that some people will be interested in funding it because I'm thinking more and more like I, like we were talking about the gallery world yeah as a classical painter relatively classical I don't know what the, what the hell whatever we are right. <laughs> you start to we, think we all are so yeah. <laughs> whoever we are yeah. whatever <laughs> yeah you start to think that maybe the gallery system and the contemporary art world and that traditional way of doing it is also something to break away from. I've been thinking a lot about this lately, that when I look at all the art that I love, it was done in a totally different context. And so I'm starting to think about that now, too, is like how to make these pieces not only bigger and more monumental, so when you walk into, like, in this case, it's a giant U, yeah. Oh, yeah, and you yeah. walk into it and, and you're it surrounded by you. it. Yeah. yeah, and, like, to create that experience, that's a totally different experience than, you know, the way we would typically think of as, like, making six pieces that somebody will take home and have for sale and also to be able to go into the big narratives that are maybe a little intense right. and a little like challenging and I'm thinking like to me that's kind of where this whole movement of art comes into its own mm -hmm. you know because it's based on this tradition that goes back thousands of years right. of making monumental pieces that are telling stories and usually not like maybe with the exception of like the French Rococo Usually not like easy stories, you yeah. know, they're like philosophical, they're challenging, they're horrific, they're violent, they're beautiful, you know, everything's kind of going together. Right. <laughs> well, what you're saying is also a lot of it, because uh, I do know that narrative and even things like mythology start creeping, creeping at the, into your paintings and sort of your aesthetics of your visual aesthetics. Yeah. How did you, what was, was there something, was there like a certain painting or just a frame of mind you were at where you're like, this is where I need to go? Like, I think a lot of it had to do with um, reading Joseph Campbell. Really? When I was young was a starting point and that sort of then led me to, what did that lead me to? Reading, um, you know, Gilgamesh, Beowulf, yeah. uh, the Odyssey, the Iliad, all down that road. And getting really into mythology and getting into the kind of... There's something about the characters there that you create this other space. That again, I think it's kind of like the painting. You know, you go into a space that's a little altered from reality. And in that space, you have a lot more freedom with your storytelling. You know, you can see that probably like magic realism and all this too. Mm -hmm. It's that quality of just being a step away from the real. Which probably there's an element of escapism in there too. Yeah. But I just love... Like, I remember my mom was reading me um, the Norse myths when I was maybe six, and she was studying for a class she was taking in mythology to become an English major. Like the Scandinavian version of everything? Yeah, and there was a scene where I remember one of them was peeing on the other one. Yeah. <laughs> and being like six years old, I'd never come across anything like this before. <laughs> and I was just going, like, what the hell is going on in this world? It's just like so much more wild and crazy and exciting than like my world, you know, like going with my lunchbox off. <laughs> right, right. to school in the morning and it just so you start peeing on people <laughs> totally yeah right. much worse than that so it seems <laughs> like you're a total autodidact like school maybe wasn't totally the place for you but that you're fascinated and and you just like launched on a path just start reading yeah like, I think everything. I was actually helped by the fact that 
I had a horrible time in school. So, but, and I didn't really study and I was a terrible student. It sounds so, like you're an incredible student. It's just, you need, you need to be motivated on I your don't own. take direction well, you know, and I think <laughs> that, that was always the case. That was the case in Atelier. I mean, I was a terrible student at Atelier. Oh, really? So yeah, you were in Florence. I was in Florence, yeah. And I think I was one of the... I remember listening to one of these talks. Maybe you guys did it with Cesar Santos talking about oh, yeah. getting through the whole program in yeah. six months. Yeah. I think I finished like three Barg drawings in like six <laughs> months. <you know? laughs> right. I was just awful. Like it's just something about external discipline doesn't work for me. But the right. beauty of that was when I started to read and get into these things, they hadn't been spoiled either. You know, like I hadn't gone and been introduced to them in public school. Mm-hmm. So they were kind of mine, you know, this became like my space right. that I could go off and escape into and read these stories and find meaning in them instead of getting some kind of like some sort of meaning that was put onto them right. academically or told what they're supposed to mean. They yeah, relate to your totally. life, your experience. And yeah. What they were supposed to mean in a late 20th century academic paradigm of how people were interpreting this stuff, you mm-hmm. know, where when you just like approach it directly, somehow it's so much more vivid. Yeah. And there's just so much more room for you to discover in there. So how do you go from three bargs to painting monumental? <laughs> <laughs> God, it took a long time. Explain that a, there. Really long time. I actually got through uh, doing a, a few casts as well. Uh-huh. I think I finished, barely finished the cast drawing program while I was at Michael John Angel's. And then I started a cast painting and never um, really finished it. Mm-hmm. I just had a lot of problems. Like I think something about... Again, it's one of these weird things where if I had to kind of discover my own way to do it, which took a really long time, but this idea of taking and mixing up pieces of paint and putting them on, it's like my pieces never added up, you know? <laughs> like the person who's trying to like fit those puzzle pieces together. Yeah. And there's always like the one guy that puzzle pieces in class just don't fit together, which was like, those are my paintings. They were just awful. You're trying to put the square tag into the round hole. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to simplify the eye cast into like patches of tone and my tone patches are not the right tone and they're not in the right place. Just going in your own direction with yeah, it, like misinterpreting just, totally. Yeah. Kind of like those, maybe if like, you know, you could see Matisse work he did with Bouguereau or something. (laughs) It was probably like that, like Cezanne. And then, um, yeah, at some point I just kind of accepted the fact after I left that my brain just didn't work like that. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could get my hands around this whole thing was to do it sculpturally and kind of Mm three-dimensionally. So that meant kind of, it meant learning a lot first, like learning a lot about perspective and planes and anatomy and how light works on form. And so I found my way to do it finally was to sort of do the whole thing intellectually and not mm-hmm. be all that much into like actually looking at what's in front of me. Right. But to kind of take a glance and go like, all right, the light is this color, the perspective is here, the center line's over here, the kind of the basic color of the thing is this, maybe there's some light bouncing from over here that has a different quality. Mm-hmm. And then sort of like intellectually yeah. build the model. Mm-hmm. And then it worked. But the whole like look at what you see and paint it was... That was yeah. terrible. Just Sorry. terrible. Were <laughs> My you, paintings were awful. Were you discouraged at any point? Were you like, well, this is oh, how yeah. I'm so supposed to do it, and I'm not doing it right, so I guess I'm not meant for this. And no, it's... that was a real problem. Like when Because I, I think I was pretty good as a teenager, mm-hmm. and then I got pretty bad for a while. 
maybe around 18, 19, 20. And that was when I was doing that in my mind. It's like, no, no, this is the way it's meant to be done. Right. Is that when you were in Florence, 18, 19? After I came back from Florence, Mm -hmm. you know, I did a lot of really bad work for a while. (laughs) And I think it was because I was trying to figure out this system that I never quite figured out. Right. And then eventually I kind of, what happened? I think I watched some other people paint down the road. I studied with more people, Nelson Shanks. I saw Stephen Asale paint. I saw Odd Nerdrum paint. Did you go to Norway with uh, to study with Odd? No, I went to France for a few weeks, oh, cool. and he was there part of the time. So we'd talk, and I'd watch him paint, and then we'd drink at night and talk mm-hmm. some more. And it was a really great experience. Yeah. But the thing I really got from watching these guys finally was going, oh, shit, okay. There is no right way to do it. Right. You can scrape it. You can splatter it. You can overdo your highlights and brush them back. Like hook or crook. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You just make it work. And that's still kind of how I paint is very much like um, standing there and putting stuff on. And once there's something on, looking at it going, ooh. (laughs) <laughs> That's not working. That needs to be fixed. Let's get some more red in there. <laughs> ah, okay, that looks good. Looks like a raw piece of meat. Okay, like so it's bring not, a little gray. Is like every painting a little bit of a different journey? Like every time you start yeah, something, you kind of don't know exactly where or how it's going to go, and it yeah, just kind of. I have kinda... no idea. You know, I try to be systematized, but it just doesn't work. There's actually a thing John Curran said that I really like identified with, where he said, "I start a new painting, I finish the last one, and I look at it and I'm like, all right." I think I figured this out. The mm-hmm. next one's going to be no problem. Yeah, it's always a problem. <laughs> yeah, then the next one's always a problem. That's something, you know. <laughs> well, when you do it that way, do you ever get to the point where you wish it was more of a system? So I know when I do yeah, that, yeah. I get to those points where I'm like, oh, I don't want to struggle right now. Yeah, totally. Like, I wish I could just tell myself what to do and do it the same every time. I know I have. Yeah, definitely. And there is a point where I think that's happening more just by process of elimination. You know, like I feel like part of growing as an artist is just coming to terms with what you're good and bad at. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of like recognizing your strengths, you know, like if you're maybe you slow, but you hit hard, you know, (laughs) like that kind of thing and figuring it out. Right. And so then like for me, I'm getting where I don't really try to do the things as much that I'm really bad at, or at least I the things that I'm aware that I'm bad at, you know, I kind of have pushed those to the side and focused on the things that I think come more naturally. And then those end up actually being the things that I'm able to kind of think with, you know, like, um, I'm more and more like I'm focusing on the figure in my paintings and there's still landscape, there's still other things, but it's definitely dominated by the narration of the figures. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think downplaying, some of the fancy light effects. I mean, not in my most recent work. The most recent one I did had this like crazy light effect coming through with the Quebec painting. Mm-hmm. What was that painting called, by the way? Do you have Oh, that one is called, it has a working title. I always name them last. I <laughs> yes. name them like I once they're on their way. To the like, <laughs> it takes so long yeah. with the paintings. I've got like five names by the time I'm done. Yeah, by the time it's finished, I'm going, oh God, that? Now I've got to think about that. <laughs> um, it's the, uh, it was called The Ghosts of the Past was like the working title. Mm-hmm which is kind of how that came about when we were talking about doing this commission. Um, The man who commissioned it came to the studio and he said, all right, I'm gonna buy this painting from you and then next year I want you to do a commission for me. So that's the deal. Mm -hmm. All right, cool, that sounds good. So then he outlined the commission when he came the next time and it was dealing with the politics and the history of Quebec and the idea of like how things that have happened hundreds of years ago are still influencing the present, which was a pretty big subject. So, and also a great subject, because I think that's the whole story of the world right now, you know? And as I started to research it, it became really clear that this is a microcosm 
for I think the whole world <clears throat> that we're moving into now, you know, where things like left and right sort of cease to have any meaning and then you get more into this like idea of like identity. Is it, do you have a particular identity? Are you part of a global culture? All these kind of things that people are fighting about now like crazy. And so Quebec became this really interesting microcosm where to do it, we started to break down the people that were in it, the events that shaped Quebec where it is now, everything that led up to these like big crises they had of, you know, are they going to separate, are they not? And uh, yeah, it was kind of, it meant sort of approaching it in a new way that I'd never really thought about before, which is taking all this outside information mm -hmm. and having to find the story in it, you know? So it became this really interesting process of reading a lot of history and a lot of politics and having interviews with people that I would go up to meet some politicians and lawyers that had worked with them and uh, historians in Quebec. And as I got into all this information, I started to think like, crap, I've got to find a story here, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so that, became really integral. I don't even remember where I was going with this story entirely. Is it? Doesn't Are matter. You, you're, you're, you're telling <laughs> a good story. <laughs> okay, good. So as I got into it, I'll just keep, I'll just yeah, yeah, improvise please. here. Um, it actually kind of changed the way that I thought about politics here too, which was really interesting in our own history. Because when you look at an outside source or an outside culture with that kind of intensity to break it down, to find the stories at the heart of it, I found it's kind of like looking at a cast, right? You see the light and the shadow. Mm -hmm. And it seems like in your own culture, you tend to see the light or the shadow. You know, you tend to see things from a particular point of view and a particular upbringing. But looking at it at another, another country with a, you know, not totally different, but slightly different culture, it was fascinating because I really got to see the whole thing and find these sort of like almost abstract rhythms in the painting that right. reflected the rhythms of their history and politics. So I started to look into it and I found these like kind of great sort of Greek tragedy meets like Richard III kind of rhythms mm -hmm. of politicians with their ambitions and these great ideas. And then they'd come to power and they'd overstep through hubris and like overestimating how much power they really had. And the next thing they came crashing down as people rebelled against them and were replaced with somebody else. And you just see this cycle happening year after year after year which then I brought back to looking to, at the United States, right, and that yeah. totally changed my way of looking at politics here. Instead of like a dichotomy of these guys are right, these ones are wrong, you know, God save us from this one, this mm -hmm. one's a saint. It became much more of looking at this like cycle of power mm -hmm. in the way the Greeks would have looked at it, or the Romans, you know, people in the Renaissance, I think, with who probably had a little less ideology than we do. I wonder. Yeah, <laughs> I think they didn't invest it in politics so much because they had plenty of other places to invest it. You know, I mean, you had the church, you had your, you had, I think, much more, a much less global world where right. people were very invested in their own neighborhood, their family. I think family was more of a power structure back then and had more actually like legal rights than now we have the state has those rights. Right. And I think because of that, you had all these different places that you put your belief and your faith and your meaning of who you were. Where for us, I think we're much more of like a political culture, you know? So, well, right. I mean, democracy is maybe a religion or, you know, capitalism seems to And communism and capitalism and right. all of these movements, economics, we have these sets of religions. Right. And so I think part of doing also history... Also conspiracy theory. Oh, those are great <laughs> That's too. a huge religion, though. Oh, I love conspiracy theory. I mean, because yeah. that... I, I, I <laughs> used to... Jones. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. He's, he's a nut. <laughs> he's wonderful. But he's just such a nut. He's but such a lunatic. But the idea that, like, somebody is pulling all of these strings or some yeah. group of people 
people yeah. is essentially like God. And, you know, for people who don't believe in God, I think that that's, you know, that's a belief system, you yeah, know, it just that some order, it's not random, know? right? Like, you know, people don't just die randomly. Like, they die because these string pullers pulled their string. Yeah, they were going to report on Hillary Clinton or something, and the next thing, they're just <laughs> right. gone. Yeah, yeah, you create these stories that well, I think they do, like, because you look around at the world, and, like, so often it's just, it's chaos, right? right. Which and is it's part appealing of, uh, to have order. Yeah, I mean, that's why we make art, too, right? Yeah. You bring this little moment of beauty and something that you can kind of look and walk into this experience, and you feel order. Yeah. You know, like, you look at the Sistine ceiling, and suddenly you're just, like, in this world, well, at first, I mean, it's it's overwhelming. You look up there, and it's it's disorder, and then you start to like focus in, and it becomes order, and there's a progression. I mean, it's I think it's like anything. You you look at it at first, and it's it's you can't make sense of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is. It's just it's almost like a pattern, you know. When you see the whole thing laid out, it's, yeah, it, it could almost be like say take a really bad metaphor, like a Persian carpet or something. You know, it's just like patterns after patterns after patterns, and then you look into it. But it is so ordered, right? It's kind of reflective of their view or Michelangelo's view of like Neoplatonism. Yeah. That there is a cosmic order out there somewhere. Yeah. And you can reflect it on this planet in little glimpses of it, you know? And so I think that kind of becomes the same thing we're talking about with the conspiracy theories, not to compare Neoplatonism to conspiracy <laughs> theory. I really like Neoplatonism. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the Renaissance was going along really well until, you know? <laughs> I mean, those actually are Everything, pretty well-founded yeah. conspiracy Yeah, it was the Bilderberger group. <laughs> <laughs> so with your, uh, with your work, you, um, you include the figure. I mean, the figure is now an essential, well, not essential. It's, it's a focal your, point. It's a focal point of your work. What does the figure mean to you now? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think it's the drama, you know, I'm getting more and more, <clears throat> especially after this last painting, into the idea of like scripting things out in a drama and having to really think about them. Because the last couple of paintings I did were both commissions and I had these great dialogues with the people who were commissioning them. And so I ended up having to really think things through in the beginning, like where, where am I actually going with this? And I realized at that point, I've done a lot of paintings where I just sort of had a vague idea Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that would look cool. That would look cool. Yeah, Visual. that would Visual. look great. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to paint that. And on these ones, I had to really think about it. And so as you started to think about it, you developed narratives and stories. And then, of course, those stories tend to be very human-centered. Right. Like these, and also, like I've been consciously kind of going into that. Because I think that's something that can be missing from a lot of figurative art sometimes. Is people sometimes play it a little safe. Mm-hmm. And they're not really like going in and looking at like the real meat of the matter in there, you know. Like I just uh, a friend, David Molesky, wrote an article about uh, Titian, mm-hmm. and it was about the Titian, the flame of Marcius that was in the uh, the unfinished show oh, yeah. recently. Yeah. And he was telling me some interesting background on it that like right around the time he painted that, some guy had supposedly been flayed alive in Sicily. Oh, they're still doing that in Sicily. Yeah, they're still doing that. I mean, they're doing that in Bushwick. (laughs) And so this was actually like a kind of an event that was in the news. And thinking about that, their version of the news, you know, sailors tell stories about it, that kind of thing. And so that had kind of crept in. And thinking about that, that people were actually discussing this like flame that was happening, kind of brought a little bit of vividness to the painting. Mm -hmm. And then he went into a text... 
I'm way too hungover today. I, <laughs> textual. We'll just, we'll just say reading. <laughs> he, he, he read the text. Textual, right? Yeah, yeah, of the plane of Barclay's Robin. And he really broke it down in detail. And I started to realize from that article just how close Titian was reading this, this, uh, this story. Right. Where I've always, in the past, I'd take the stories kind of loosely and then play jazz with them and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So lately I've been getting more into that idea of really actually digging into the story that's being painted and finding right. all these like different angles on it and then trying to reflect that through the characters. But then that story as allegory for something that's actually contemporary? Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, not just transforming the story to kind of taking the bones of it and shifting it a little bit, mm-hmm. like taking their same people, but updating them, mm-hmm. which has been kind of a challenge too. Cause you find, you know, I hate to say it, a lot of modern clothes just don't look that interesting. Well, <laughs> so you have that challenge. Wait a second. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like they had those big satin sleeves yeah. and, you know, hose and pointy shoes, like just whatever the hell they had. It was like, there's some pretty interesting things and drapery and cloth being like the old cliche of classical painters. Yeah is really a useful tool. I right. mean, that becomes this beautiful abstract thing that you can, any color you want, any shape you want, moving in any direction you want. You know, it's like cherubs are kind odd, of the uh, same thing. You need to pose for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that, that great robe. Yeah, exactly. And cherubs too, right? You think of cherubs, I always looked at them as sort of like the abstract painting element of a lot of the old masters because you can stick them on the top flying around. You can move (laughs) a whole mass coming in from the left, you know, (laughs) and eye movers, they provide that sort of rhythm in the painting. Compositional elements. Yeah, and so this was one of the challenges I had is like, what am I going to use for this? How am I going to hold my paintings together without these like great tropes that they had in the past? So I've been trying to... um, Yeah, exactly. Pigeons. I use a lot of pigeons (laughs) and I have... um, I tend to have like my clothes, even if they're modern, they tend to get a little bigger mm-hmm. on people, so the folds so you can, can be slowed them around mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, yeah, you know all those kind of tricks, because I think that to me was part of what made this old painting so beautiful is that abstract component. Yeah, you know, so it's always about trying to do that. Plus, when you have eight figures standing there, you kind of have two choices. I think one is to set them up very symmetrically, and very. Since it's like kind of a static design, mm-hmm. and once you throw them into spirals and these different rhythms, you usually need something to bridge the gap. Yeah. You know, like you get all kinds of awkward connections of elbows oh, yeah. and breasts, and like you know the guy's face, and then there's a foot coming right across it. It's like these things that really just kind of like break the flow of the painting, and so that's where all these other elements come in to like keep the eye moving in a kind of symphonic way. Right, and break the figures apart so that break there's the no awkward apart. interactions. So when yeah. you so when you're doing those, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. awkward interactions, that, like <laughs> hand and head kind yeah. of thing yeah. happens, you know, <laughs> crotch, crotch yeah. and face. Oh, that happened on my last one. Yeah. <laughs> on purpose or no? I just like, at one point I was going like, oh my god, look at that. His head is like. <laughs> right at the wrong point on that guy. Like, so what happens? Do you just have to like move the, a figure? Like Sometimes what? I'll move a figure, yeah, or maybe find some way to kind of soften that area a little bit with light or shade to mm-hmm. kind of keep your eye looking where I want it to look. Right. Caravaggio and, is amazing at that, like just orchestrating light and dark masses to oh, kind of so guide you around. And there are areas where if there are those awkward interactions, they're just kind of lost in this like inky sea of no light. That's true. And there, and there's the other like way to approach it, which is totally different than, you know, my way of like sort of Bollywood approach, I guess you'd call it <laughs> with birds flying and cloth everywhere is shadow, light and shadow, yeah. you know, where you can kind of 
tie everything back and push him back into the dark. Right, and lose it, yeah, in that, in that impenetrable space. Yeah, that much more serious way of doing it. Like, I kind of like a little bit of the frivolousness. A little lightness <laughs> to it. Yeah, I like a little lightness, you know, because that's another weird thing when you're painting for so long. I did a really dark series a while back. Not dark, like literally dark, but subject matter was yeah. very dark. And when I finished it, I was just exhausted. You know, like, it's weird. It does, like, it creeps into your head. Absolutely. Whatever world. Every day. I find sometimes that's a, I don't know, for me, a real, like, I go to really dark painting. Sometimes I just, I mean, periodically I really need that. And it's yeah. it maybe in some sense cathartic to just get that out, like, to get some really, really dark statements. Oh, the best, isn't it? Out of yourself. I like, do it's it. just exercise I'll, it. I'll do I do that, too, I'll actually. do that with music as well at the same time. And you don't want to sound cheesy to say, oh, it's like a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause, but there is. Like, you live it. I think there totally is. And I think that's why artists tend to get, you know, sometimes as they get older, they get a little more eccentric. Yeah. Because you spend so much time living in this other world that essentially you're kind of the master of it, you know? Yeah. You're sort of like the Donald Trump of your painting. You know, everybody <laughs> grabbing, you know? <laughs> so you, you do you look at this world that you script, essentially, which gets very interesting, right? Because you can script yourself into a corner, too. Yeah. Which I've done where it's like, because I love dark paintings, too. They're amazing. They're like, oh, there's something so raw about looking Dramatic. at just like a brutal painting yeah. that's like touching at the same time, you know, because there's the sadness, there's the reflection on mortality, which I think a lot of painting has that, you know, because it's so beautiful when it's done well yeah. that you can take things in. You can look at stuff that's just like, you really couldn't handle it in life, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's just so dark. It's so sad. It's like reflections on like the cruelty of human beings to each other, all this kind of stuff. Somehow in a painting, you're able to kind of live there a little longer and take it in because I think the beauty is so soothing you know I always thought like the beauty is almost like uh, the neoplatonic kind of god or something you know like that's the thing that comes through and gives you the bigger perspective that no matter what's going on in this scene there's some greater kind of sense about it right and so I always thought that's like what beauty does so you can go in and you can see these things where if you saw them in reality you would just probably you know you'd be scarred for life (laughs) I mean that's exactly that's a great point because, and it's something I think we've um, echoed a lot on this, and uh, echoed, echoed a lot, a lot on, this on this, and this. with our own works, and you know, d- discussions with our peers is the idea of something like making something beautifully done, making it beautiful, even if the subject matter might be a little harsh. I've been to museums and seen certain work that is just done poorly, and there isn't whether it's a, it doesn't have to be virtuistic, you know, virtuo painter or sculptor or something but the idea is that you're like it's ugly looking and they're exploring a very ugly subject i want nothing to do with this thing yeah but i've seen you know whether it's a goya painter or anything that might be a little harsh and you're like but it's so beautiful i want to look at it and i want to explore the idea and i want to be sad and i want to be you know i want everything you know, like it keeps you in, it sucks you in. Yeah, and it's that idea of the sublime, right? Like going back to the yeah. 18th century when they were, I remember, what was that? Lessing's Laocoon, I think, where he talks about that. You know, it's like you can take this, literally it's a guy and his two kids being devoured Demon by giants. By, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's terrible, but it's so beautiful so at beautiful. the same time. Yeah. And they accentuate each other. They make them like Morse or Rubens battle scene. Yeah. yeah, the Raft of the Medusa. Oh, the Raft of the Medusa is another one. Yeah. It's just so, it is, it's like sublime, you know, it's so terrible, it's terrifying, it's dark, and that makes the beauty like more 
poignant in a way, more present. You know? Yeah. Because I think maybe that's that old kind of corny theory, but there might be some truth to it that, like, without death, there wouldn't be beauty, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. To reflect aesthetically on your life, you kind of have to be aware that it's a thing that's going to end in a way, you know, mm-hmm. to, like, really appreciate a sense. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. No, sorry, did I just spoil that? <laughs> you ruined sorry. the ending for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Santa Claus is in the field. I just found Wait, that out. what? Yeah. You heard it here first. You so just disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you paint, you've painted a lot of allegory uh, in the past, and I'm curious if the a lot of those, like, when you paint something allegorical, like, are you developing an idea and then you start to flesh it out visually or do you start with a visual idea and then begin to... I think both, you know, because um, I have like a, on my phone, I have the notes thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, app, yeah. And I, what I like to oh do my God, is sit there and I notes. have a joint and look at my note and bring my notes app out and just start writing and writing and writing. And I'll go through long sessions of just writing down every idea. Right. And then, Bad or good, I mean, good or bad, you're just like, get it all down. All of it, yeah. And that's the great thing about these paintings taking so long to make is usually by the time I finish the previous work, I'm sort of sorted through some of these ideas and right. the bad ones have gone. Right, and you're queued <laughs> up. I thought for... were amazing, and then I looked in the next day, and I'm like, what? <laughs> no. So those ones get put aside. Mm-hmm. And then also at the same time start like collecting files of paintings I really love. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully at some point, uh, or just images that I love, you know, and at some point I start to get an intersection of like a visual inspiration and mm-hmm. a sort of conceptual narrative inspiration. Are they hand in hand? Like, is it that idea and then visual inspiration that relates to that idea in some, maybe not, you know, direct way, but just some way that you're making a connection? Some way, yeah. Because some idea will come up and then usually, usually I find like a certain story, a certain, a certain narrative, let's say, Mm -hmm. kind of feels like it demands sort of a visual look to. Mm -hmm. Um, Like if it's a really like horrific story, mm-hmm. oftentimes I'll sort of actually switch to a lighter palette, mm-hmm. maybe a little more uh, friendly palette right? to sort of bring in that dichotomy again like we were talking about with the darkness yeah. and the beauty and then if it's like a sort of a more philosophical or playful story, then oftentimes I'll like let myself push a little farther out uh-huh. in the other range and maybe it, it becomes very dark and heavy with hints of flame going and all this kind of, you know, smoke billowing, all that kind of stuff happening. And so it kind of fits together. Mm-hmm. And then it just sort of evolves, you know. I'll also, like, play with uh, a lot of looking at old sculptures and right. getting inspiration for what I want my figures to look like. And are you sketching the whole time? Are you, are you yeah. like, looking at old sculptures and Not doing sketches? Or? Once I've sort of, like, settled in mm-hmm. to my idea, to the thing, then I'll start to sketch. Because mm-hmm. I find like the sketching, I don't know, for me it works better when I know where I'm going. Right. I'm not much of like a telephone book sketcher, right. where it's just like something comes out and then I look at it and I'm like, ah, oh, there it is, it's done, that's, that's it. <laughs> it is masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Send that to the show. <laughs> yeah, it's much more something. Chelsea, like, here I come. Yeah. <laughs> I really have to kind of know where I'm going, you know? Yeah. And so I think, uh, like, the allegory came in on that level. Like, usually I'd have an idea, something that was bugging me about the world, and I'd be like, I don't want to talk about this because I'm mad, you know? <laughs> and then so, let's take that for example. And then I'll develop a sort of weird allegorical way of talking about it mm-hmm. so it doesn't become really bad social realism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's what is, uh, I think, you... Uh, 
it, it, it's a it's a difficult path to yeah. uh, paint or basically illustrate an idea that you have that has some you know social justice or whatever some some kind of social cause behind it and not make it into you know a pretty like rote illustration yeah you know and I think um yeah, I think that just annoys people, you know, at least it annoys me when you look at a piece and it's just hitting you over the head mm-hmm. really hard with its message. Oh my God, yeah. You know, especially if it's like not a huge message, you know, I feel like there's a thing with mess. if it's a message and it's a message painting, it's got to be a great message. Yeah. You've got to yeah. get that message and be like, wow, by God, I just learned something amazing. <laughs> you know, I never looked at it that way before, but usually that doesn't happen. No. Right. Usually it's exactly the way you look at it. And, and newspapers have photographs of that happening and if you know you don't necessarily need and there's that too you know right we're not like journalists it would be an insane way to be a journalist to you know strap your easel and your paints and like (laughs) go to syria and set up i mean it would be interesting i think i tony actually have time talked about that but like it would be be a sitting target for (laughs) six to eight hours if you could live you 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 might you know you might come up with something completely different but if if you're just relying on you know photographs that other people took in Syria and you're not actually going to Syria. I don't, you know, I don't, it doesn't, I don't know, it would be hard for it to be authentic. Yeah, totally. And I think at that point, that's where you might have to translate it into like a mythical language, an Mm -hmm. allegorical language and find that reflection on something that not only is a universal human experience, but maybe also something that even for people that have never been in war, it's like you can boil it down even farther. Be like, I right. don't ever want to be in war. Yeah, like what is that feeling of conflict yeah. that you can even have with like the guy that's writing you a ticket, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. Boil down to <laughs> such universal. Yeah. You know? yeah, traffic. Traffic is a metaphor for war. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This painting is inspired by traffic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is there any painting in particular that you could maybe, I mean, I think you, you did a little bit with the Quebec painting, but are there any paintings that, you know, maybe people could look at on their website that you could kind of take us through, like, I don't know, like for an example, uh, I tried to paint this allegorical still life. I took this, uh, like an old overcoat that my uh, grandfather had and I put an apple in the pocket and kind of threw it on a chair and it was this kind of long draped jacket leading into this apple and for me it was, you know, it was kind of this discarded apples, kind of depressing, sad kind of thing that I was doing. I know that's how I just felt at the time. It was a beautiful, like shiny apple. And I I showed it to some friends. We were at the time kind of doing this paint group thing where we would all kind of get together and show each other what we were working on and try and kind of help each other, you know, hone your idea or maybe the painting's not working in some way. And it was kind of a great you know, maybe more formal way of doing what I think we all do with each other now. But yeah, uh, it, it, the, the painting, you know, for me had these kind of dark undertones and this kind of idea of isolation and, and kind of discarded, you know, this fruit that's beautiful but discarded and it'll just rot in the pocket. But yeah. everybody Sadness I showed it to it. had exactly the opposite reaction that they had, like seen it as this like warm like you know and and people who didn't realize it was my grandfather's jacket were like oh I remember when my grandfather used to give me candy it reminds me of that you know it just had that feeling kind of in it that I didn't intend it was the opposite of what I intended yeah (laughs) but I wonder um if 
you know, that said that, you know, allegory can be interpreted different ways. If you could maybe walk us through one of your paintings oh, sure, and yeah. sort of describe what you, what your intent was, you know, maybe in, I don't know, like the, um, you had a, a series, you do different series of paintings. Yeah, there's been a few recently. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll, I'll do that and I'll start by saying that's actually really interesting because I've had a couple of times recently where somebody would write something about the painting or do a talk about a painting. And one of them, I didn't even speak the language. It was in Spanish, but I saw the guy doing the talk. And I saw them pointing out things and describing things that I was completely unaware of <laughs> in the process of the painting, but were true, you know? Yeah, like one guy did the golden section. This was down in Ecuador, yeah. this writer. And I looked at it and I was going, oh, by God, there is the golden section there. <laughs> I had no idea. I wasn't thinking about that at all. And within, uh, with the Quebec painting, actually, I had an essay I read recently that uh, Donald Cuspit wrote about that, and he was describing some of the things that were going on in the painting, and looking at it going, that's all true, but it was just beneath the surface, you know? So with allegory, I think that's really true, that it can exist just beneath the surface. Yeah. And I think it kind of should, you know? Like, there's a sort of a general idea. So with one of them, I would say, um, let's take a painting, for example. all right, The Twilight in Arcadia, the first mm-hmm. one that I did for my series with the Hunters and the Satyrs. Yeah. You know, I really was drawn to the Satyrs because <clears throat> at the time I was just really, like I'm saying, I'll watch the news and they'll be like, oh, God damn it, I'm painting that, you know? And so I was <laughs> noticing there's just this amazing thing humans do that we build these systems and everything that doesn't make sense in our system, no matter how beautiful or wonderful it is, gets like removed, you know, from like the Amazon rainforest, <laughs> the like beautiful old buildings, like, what's the purpose of this? You know, right. This in glass and steel (laughs) much quicker. (laughs) We'll make it stronger, faster. And so I was looking at this with this idea that it's actually kind of true, right, about people, at least part of what makes us people. That's one of our traits. That we'll look at the most wonderful thing, the most magical thing, and then just, like, annihilate it. Yeah. And so I like the satyrs as this stand-in, you know, it's sort of the parts, almost in a Freudian sense, that we've discarded from ourselves and pushed off to the side that maybe we're not comfortable with in society. Like, all of these anti-social urges that we probably developed over millions of years, you know, throwing crap at each other in trees or whatever we were doing, you know, as monkeys, like these things are still there. And I'm kind of fascinated by that idea of like everything that you have to change about a person to make them civilized. Mm -hmm. And so I loved the satyr. I was really drawn to the satyr as this image of not just in people, but in the world, all of this natural stuff that just gets removed, even when it's like a we can satyr. It's like a magical creature. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. They just hunt them down and blow them away. And so they were these sort of like, sort of call back to nature, not in a sort of like idealistic, nice sense. Like, well, I'll go back to nature and you know we'll make granola and it's going right. to be great. In kind of a raw sense, like yeah, nature is like, not always. Yeah, nature is harsh, violent, like yeah. all of that stuff, you know. And so no, so I wanted to do it that way. It's like there's no villains here, you know. These aren't just like the corporate raiders coming in and slaughtering, you know, they're also the same urge that's making them control nature and dominate it is the same urge that builds skyscrapers and the internet. And so it became this great drama of these like two sides interacting. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of what was under underlying my thinking on that painting. And then I did a bunch of paintings with the same theme. Right. And recently I'm doing another one. I'm doing a triptych for a client in Germany that it reversed it. So in this one, the satyrs are actually overtaking the people. <laughs> and it's having a big, they're kind of having an orgy. <laughs> and so, I, and I love it, I'll, that again on two levels, because like, you can read them in different ways, you know? Right. 
you could look at that in so many ways. On the one way, you could say people are kind of getting in touch with their nature and they're having a great time and they're sort of like throwing off their shackles. And on the other hand, you can also say like kind of where we are in the world today, it's almost like all those old gods are waking up that were put to sleep, you know, that a few years ago you'd be like, no, that would never happen. God <laughs> <laughs> like, damn it, it did. <laughs> and so I feel like that's how that works on both of those levels, you know, it becomes a kind of, you can comment on it from multiple angles. Right. Because you sort of read them emotionally, I think, you know, at least that's how I read a painting. I read it very yeah. emotionally. It's not like I look at the painting and I'm like, oh, well, this figure over here is like It's clearly doing this, right? Yeah. You're like, so do you find it like as you're painting it, you're kind of switching allegiance all throughout the painting? Oh, and totally, it sounds yeah. like you're, you're trying to fairly represent both, you know, the positive and negative of... Yeah, because I think you kind of have to, you know, otherwise we do, then we just become like propaganda. Right. And I don't even want to be propaganda for like my own ideas because they're not good enough, you know. <laughs> I'm looking at my own ideas like I don't know what the hell is going on. Like, right. I want to kind of present that, you know, there's like multiple sides. And the idea that there's no neat choices, you know. Right. Like there is no like safe choice. Yeah, there are trade-offs with everything. Yeah. You're like a painting mercenary. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, exactly. The most- <laughs> You're like, All right, I'll switch allegiance, no problem. Yeah, I'll, so- I'll present both sides yeah. here. I just back off. Here. It's not my fault. You know, whatever happens. <laughs> So those paintings, they started with, essentially, with that idea, and, and then you, you were, oh, Seder, perfect, that's the, sta-. and and then did you start collecting kind of imagery and start sketching? Yeah, and- kind of like that, you know, and also it's a weird thing, like I'm sure as artists you guys have the same thing, there's like maybe an image or an idea that's been rolling around in there mm-hmm. for years, and then the right instance comes along, and it connects, it's like, ah, oh, that's how that image fits in there, you know, like it's been there in the back of my mind, like Saturday. Have right. been interested in them for years. Yeah. And interested in mythology and especially like weird mythical creatures and all of these sort of like just these beautiful paintings and heads that you'd see on a doorway in Italy as you yeah. walk down yeah. the street. And you're like, what is that? You it's know, also like, fascinating that that's what people arrived at. Like a satyr is the kind of combination of, you know, that, that they chose to represent something and it's kind of perfect and you're kind of, it's fascinating yeah, that that's it's what. It's this really old world thing. You know? yeah. It's like stripped of all of our baggage from this society. It's like going way back. And I do think that's kind of an interesting, fun thing to do with art because you can go so far back into our roots that you actually can start to hit on some more interesting primal things, you know? Because yeah. I, like, I feel like that when I look at a Baroque painting, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. like the society that created that was in some way much more raw than our society. Mm-hmm. And so they would stick stuff in there that you're just going like, never get away with that. Like, <laughs> you look at a Rubens painting and you're like, is that? Woman jerking off that baby. You know, like, these paintings were had some crazy stuff going on, you know. Weird stuff. Yeah, there's like this was like kind of raw and unedited in a way, and I'm not sure if that's because some of these were being painted for warlords or yeah. what was going yeah. on. But they like they put all this stuff in, which I think is great because art's a really safe place to put the violent and to put the bizarre and to put all these other elements into it, and it becomes part of the story that's telling kind of the story about human nature, you know? Cause it's like, we're sitting here and it's comfortable and the heat's on and then somewhere out there, people are getting blown to smithereens. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it's the whole picture. But it was I so interesting cause they were doing it in so many ways not to be literal. And it was like, everything was an artistic 
like whether it was a analogy of something or like in mythology it was just it was people who didn't understand something and they're like well let's just make up a story around it to explain this phenomenon that's in front of us and we don't know what it is so let's make up a story about it and then present it to the world so they understand what i'm what i'm thinking or talking about which is super interesting, right? Because yeah, there is yeah. that like kind of Rorschach test element to that. Yeah. It's like, how did that tree get by that river? Well, you know, Apollo is yeah, like kind of <laughs> on it one day. Guy. Saw this hot girl walking by. He chased her. You know, she Fell tried down. to get away. <laughs> yeah, like that whole story. And so that story is an interesting thing, right? Because you could explain that river any way you wanted to. Yeah. Though there's like some historical connections. I think it comes even more from this sort of like deep human stories, you know. Like well, it's, it almost seems like we have, we do, we're wired to be creative. In I one think way we or are. Another. Yeah. You know, it's like we're not going to just a lot of times say exactly what it is in front of us. We're going to make up this kind of, you know, tall tale <laughs> yeah. to describe what it is. So to better, actually, to better describe what it is. Yeah, well, it's exactly. fascinating that, like, throughout history, there have been common threads throughout those stories, particularly in societies that weren't necessarily connected, that you, you find these common threads in mythology from, like, radically different places. Yeah, and it makes sense, right? Because, like, it's the same things. Well, it's human story, exactly, right? Yeah, we, people like, like the same things. Power, sex, security, food, food, to be able to live. Aliens. Yeah. Aliens. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. aliens. Yeah. Apparently there's like all these different societies that describe the same exact alien. Well, now we're back to <laughs> conspiracy, conspiracy <laughs> to fast flag. No, but it is true. Like the, people do keep coming up with these same ideas. Like and all these old stories too, when they believed in ghosts and that, like that's the other thing that's so interesting to me about old history painting which I'm trying to work in as compared to like maybe a lot of 19th century history painting, Mm -hmm. is back then, like history was like a myth. It was like a fable, you know? Right. So if you were- Of anything happening. Yeah, and nobody like, really knew what people dressed like or looked yeah. like. Like some of those guys didn't even but know even what world a lion events. Was. Yeah. Even world events weren't true. They were just it was a story somebody told you. Right, twenty years yeah. down the road it was like folklore. Yeah, yeah, and that's what was so beautiful about some of the history paintings where I love it that they just have no idea what the history was. <laughs> and I think that's a beautiful thing because then it becomes their creation in a sense, yeah. you know. It's like it became easier to inhabit history painting. Which is one of the challenges now doing it is we have so much information that you have to find like a creative way to inhabit that painting yeah. again and those subjects. You know? Right. Like, especially if you're doing history. It's like, you know, you could paint the history of Pickett, like let's say the Iraq War. One of my designs I'm doing has to do with like with that. And it, you have to find a way to like bring that to life in your own way, you know, because we have too much information. It becomes too literal. Right. There's yeah, too much know? like data on that. And yeah, and people have too many expectations of what it's supposed to look like. Right. And so I think as painters, like then you're in a straitjacket, yeah. you know, you can't make any interesting moves. Yeah. So, so you're saying now being creative is essential. I think it is. You know, that's actually something Chomsky said that I liked where he's kind of the purpose of human beings is to be creative Mm. and to the idea, to the degree you repress that, Mm. you're creating sort of a totalitarian society. False flags again. False flags. (laughs) (laughs) But I always thought that was a beautiful thing. Like, yeah, actually that's kind of true. Like that is what people want to do. It's like if somebody gets property and they want to build their house, they want to do it with the utmost, you know, creative freedom. 
to make it. They paint paintings. They want to be creative, like right. the jobs that nobody wants to do are pretty much the jobs where you have no creative freedom involved, you know? Once the DOB gets involved. <laughs> yeah, once you're like, you have to put on your paper hat and <laughs> stand there at the cash register, you know, like nobody enjoys that anymore. Yeah. I think that's why there's this universal admiration of children that we yeah, all have, like really young children who haven't been taught to see things exactly the way they're supposed to be, that they just, I mean, make it up. And yeah, they, they're just they so creative. And they get away with it. And they get away with it. So damn cute. But some of the stuff they even say as far as um, how they describe something, I'm like, that is so much more clever than anything I can say, you know, as far as how to describe this thing. And it wasn't like they thought about it for a long time. It almost seems like it just comes out really fast. Yeah, it seems like they have really good bullshit detectors yeah. too, don't they? Like, they just know, they you know. Not and they don't always. Feel I mean, they're buying up Santa Claus. Like that's true. <laughs> they're still into Santa Claus and the. Tooth I think there's incentive and... to believe in those things. <laughs> yeah, they get money and presents. <laughs> when they're incentivized, they'll believe anything. Yeah, <laughs> maybe it's more of an emotional thing. I'm thinking of because like, uh, I've noticed that I don't have kids, but from being around, you know, kids and my uh, my wife's family's kids, and you start to like interact with them and you do realize like they have a really interesting way of seeing the world, mm-hmm. and they're really honest. Not always. Sometimes they try to like trick you out of something. But it's yeah, like three year olds don't even they don't know the difference between dishonest and honest. Like they'll be yeah. dishonest as easily as they'll be honest. You know, they'll just and walk up and be like, Why do you look so stupid today? You yeah. Know, yeah. What happened but to you're fascinating that they like uh, there are neuron connections that just don't exist at, at certain ages. And I, I remember I was getting incredibly frustrated with my older son, like just lying to me about, you know, like, did you do this? And he'd be like, No. And I, you know, just get like furious. And then I learned, uh, I started doing some reading and I found out that like, he didn't actually know the difference between telling the truth and like, he didn't realize he, like once he had said no, that was it. He, he didn't, it didn't occur to him that he had done it. Like once he had. Oh, like he believed his own story. He did. Yeah. And then, and then I, I learned that actually that's a thing that kids do believe their own Not stories. Not kids, adults do that. I did that the other night. <laughs> I, just like that. I was telling a story about dumping a mouse because I found a mouse in a trash can and I took him to the fire escape in the building in the middle of the night and I tried to dump him to safety on the fire escape and he went right through all the way down to the bottom and it was this moment of guilt and the whole thing was there. I remember it was lightly raining and then it turns out I didn't do it at all. My wife did it and told me about it. And so she like, cut me off and called me out mid-story at this dinner party. <laughs> She's like, wait, wait, hold on there. And you were like, oh, that's right. Like, oh, right. That's a vivid imagination. Good for you. Were you on mushrooms? When she no, I wasn't story? on anything. I mean, I might have had a couple of drinks. But the part that was so amazing to me was that the whole thing was filled in. Like, I saw, I heard the fan in the background on the side of the building. I saw the light rain and the lights, you know, kind of filtering through the rain and the chipped paint. Because there were so many details there, you know? Right. It's like, I knew the setting. I knew. Well, she's a painter, too. And so she probably knows how to tell you, like, detailed of, of exactly, like, yeah, the, yeah exactly. The, the neon sign glinting off to take a really cheesy And then I example. filled it in. And that makes you wonder after a point, like, you're like, God damn, how much else have I filled in? <laughs> <laughs> what else? 
never happened that I thought happened. <laughs> I don't the, know. Maybe it's a good life to just <laughs> your best the, stories. Yeah, <laughs> you read them in the newspaper. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> one of the worst examples of that I remember. So then he, I was in a debate. With, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember hearing a story once. Uh, this this guy I know was telling me the story about um, his friend. Uh, cheating on his girlfriend back in the day and she like barged in on them like you know in in the apartment and she's like you know going nuts and who's that and he's like who she's like that person he's like I don't know what you're talking about like wouldn't even acknowledge that there was somebody in the room that's the Jedi mind trick it was trying to Jedi mind trick I'm like I don't know what you're talking about severe denial it was severe like she just totally repressed this other person yeah yeah I don't know what you're talking about the person's like I'm right here what the hell (laughs) that's amazing yeah I had something similar happen once but it was the opposite way around you know I was actually years ago when I was young and doing trouble things that young people do I was showing a woman something on a computer and another one came in that I was with and was swore swore that I was kissing her like she could describe it in detail and I'm absolutely sure I didn't because I would have liked to and I would have been happy had I done so you know maybe you did maybe but (laughs) but that too it's amazing like right your mind can come in and create which makes sense. That's what our brains do, right? Because yeah. there was a... <clears throat> it's like a survival thing. Yeah. My friend was telling me, David Molesky again, the guy that wrote the article about uh, Titian, mm-hmm. we were discussing a book he was writing about neurotherapy. Or neurotherapy. I'm too hungover to get out of here. <laughs> I'm using the wrong word. But the way the brain perceives yeah. art. And one of the things he said that was super interesting was like, you actually, your eye takes in very little light. Yeah. And then the brain comes in and reconfigures this whole imagery based on the few hints that it's getting, like yeah. relatively small hints. So the like the raw data is very light and Yeah, and then the like the reforming of that data yeah. is super sophisticated, right? So it totally makes sense. Like you maybe didn't see something at all or somebody thought they did and then you close your eyes and it's like it's all Or maybe animated. she sees so clearly if she saw your intent. Yeah, that could happen too. <laughs> intuition. <laughs> yeah, total intuition. <laughs> so I had one other thing that I wanted to ask you about because you know, you, you worked at, like you mentioned the Quebec painting and painting on it for a year. How do you, A, maintain your interest and also B, and and your focus, and B, how, like, technically, how do you continue to uh, re-engage a canvas that's been, you know, maybe one part of it has, you know, was painted a year ago, and you're still actively engaged? I mean, I I think the Unfinished Show, which, which you mentioned, is kind of an interesting example how, you know, Titian, that painting is kind of maybe not totally that unfinished because it's all being worked up together and so it's all kind of at the same level of unfinished versus I think there was maybe it was a Tintoretto painting there that there was a finished figure which surprised me and then right next to it kind of like a transfer drawing and I'm curious how you go about working on a painting for a year and are you finishing parts of it? Is it all kind of working up together? Well, yeah, I mean, I typically have, like, I start on kind of the same way, which is I'll do a drawing and try to draw as much as I can to get everything worked out. On the canvas? Yeah, 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 on the canvas. And then when I start working over the top of the drawing, it varies from painting to painting. On Mm -hmm. this one, I took a pretty elaborate procedure because there was just so much going on. 
And I think in the end, I never quite finished counting. I got bored, but I started to count the figures, and I think I got up to around 70. Wow. Wow. There's so many people in this planet. <laughs> and then I, I got to go. I can't finish. They just got too small. Right. And so uh, I couldn't really make a lot of mistakes. You know, things had to all kind of fit together. Mm -hmm. So I, I did this one in a very kind of technical way. I did like the uh, underpainting of solid paint mm -hmm. for the most part, you know, just like all the way to a finish. Full color, like an eboche? No, kind of just a... brown or okay. brown, just brown with a <laughs> raw umber. I could get technical there, I guess. A raw umber and ultramarine. Yeah. And then a little bit pushing a brown pink to just throw in some like brighter warms. <clears throat> so I could also just sort of establish some warmer and colder areas. Mm -hmm. And then pretty much just piece by piece like that. I would go in. So one head at a time. A head at a time, yeah. And a year later, you're like on the last head. Sort of. Sort of not so. And you're looking at that. the first head, like ah. Yeah, like I gotta, I gotta <laughs> paint the first head. First it's head. all wrong. <laughs> I made all those heads too light over. <laughs> yeah, so it was actually that's kind of the challenge, right? Is you can go piece by piece, and then at some point you can look back and go, well, that doesn't add up at all. Like, right. These, these are too orange. These are too light. These. Well, are I mean, too your dark. palette must have to be fairly consistent for a year, which is probably yeah. difficult. It was fairly consistent, um, but I kind of play around as I go. Yeah. Because um, this one, I ended up going back and forth a lot. Because there's one particular passage on the left. The right's pretty straightforward on the painting, but the left-hand side has these figures silhouetted against the light, with the light kind of coming down between another mass of figures and hitting a group in the center of the painting and then trailing off. Mm -hmm. And so that light effect was so difficult to make, mm -hmm. you know, because I'd have to, I was compressing the values on the figures and the light, removing some of the lighter areas from the figures in the dark and kind of doing that typical Baroque right. stage setting. But at the same time, I wanted it to be this warm, peachy light that would kind of fade away into like blue reflections. And so I would paint it and then look at it not so much, you know, yeah, so then right. I have to glaze and scumble and then get things in the big family again and then come back and work on top of it again mm -hmm. to get the freshness and the kind of life back in the color that right. sort of died with the scumbling and the glazing. So there was a lot of back and forth on this painting, mostly to create that light effect. I think the whole right-hand side took me a matter of weeks. Oh, yeah. And then the left-hand side with that the light coming through and kind of washing over the masses of figures took the other took 49 weeks the other 49 <laughs> weeks yeah because yeah. it was really a okay i'm sorry okay no, i was saying it was just very tricky to you you'd want to accentuate the warmth yeah, and then right. suddenly like the guy who has kind of a blue suit would get too warm and it would just look sort of pasty green and then i'd have to figure it out again right now, would you do things like, do you ever do color studies prior? Or? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, I do so, them, and then so you look they at don't that help so, as much as I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, if you ever get to a point where, you know, something is difficult, do you ever do, like, a little side experiment or anything like that? I have, I know I do yeah. I do it with the satyrs a lot, I find. Like, as I get into it, if I realize I just didn't, like, understand the transition from the hoof to the leg mm -hmm. as well as I thought I'll that's have to a tough sit area down. that's a tough tough spot <laughs> you know or the way the, the floppy ears are coming out or yeah. something yeah you know that requires oftentimes like I think I've done enough study and then I get to the painting and realize I'm not sure what I'm doing so then I have to go back and and do you look at pa other paintings of satyrs do you go look at goats goats you... I actually got these like kind of 
uh, shots of goats. I went out to a zoo, which was really fun in New Jersey, and uh, just a little local zoo. And I got these, there's a satyr laying on his back with the legs spread. So I was trying to get these sort of like dirty looking shots of the goats <laughs> while I was out there. <laughs> a little around. bit more smarmy. Uh, yeah. Bells. Yeah, yeah. Put it on. Show it's, me some legs. So I would like, you know, I put some food and the goats would go for it. Yeah. The position I wanted, then snap, snap, snap. And then take them back. But, and look at those legs and try to integrate everything. Mm-hmm. But it also sometimes is the translation between if you're doing like a little drawing or even have like reference or something and you blow it up to sort of mon- more monumental size that you're doing, that little transition makes perfect sense, small. And when you blow it up, you're like, that's a lot of space to transition yeah, and you may not have, have like, the information for. Totally, yeah. I did it on this painting I'm doing now. I actually had a sketch that was even more detailed than most. And there's some a red cloth, like this dress flying off of this woman, kind of off to the side. And on the sketch, it looked so beautiful. I had this little touch of cadmium right in the middle. And then you get to paint it. How am I going to put that red there? It's like it, there's all kinds of stuff going on yeah. here, you know? Like all those little spontaneous touches just become useless. You have to like <laughs> figure out the whole thing again. Right. To get that feeling, to get that feeling of something that's small, you blow it up, and you're like, "Well, that's a huge space now. That isn't just a touch of like the brush stroke alone might look really cool." And it's yeah. like, no, there's a lot of totally, and you don't have a formula, probably. At least no. I don't have a formula. Yeah. And so sometimes I look at like painters like Caravaggio, and I think like, "Oh, that dude totally had a formula yeah. worked out of scumbling creamy colors over yeah. browns yeah. and stuff." But it's there's no way he didn't on the run. Exactly, that's true. Like, all right, I just got to get what this. We need. <laughs> you just need a little more fear. <laughs> Come so up with that formula. Kill yeah. somebody in a tennis match. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Throw a plate at some <laughs> hot artichokes. Die on a beach somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound good. So, do no. you and your and Alexander are you guys constantly kind of giving each other feedback as kind of a I think so. Yeah, couple? especially when we're out in the country. You know, we've been working out there and we built the studio so we pretty much are in the same studio oh, that's all day every day when we're in the city we have our separate studios is that also difficult not really you know i think at first it took a little getting used to because mm-hmm. we're both like we're talking about earlier in the beginning you know it's a funny life you spend a lot of time sitting by yourself yeah like a lot of time oh yeah and so suddenly having somebody else in your space can be a little bit distracting yeah. you know because that part of your brain kicks in that's like do I look here? funny standing here? Right. You know, like, did I just pick my nose? Like all that kind of stuff comes in and you become a little more self-conscious. Right. But no, we got totally used to it after a while. That's great. And, and so you guys are upstate? Yeah. Well, no, we're in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, Pennsylvania, right. Oh. Yeah. And it's been really great because I get to watch her paint. Mm-hmm. And then like I just described kind of my chaos of painting, you know, where I'm glazing, I'm scumbling, I'm putting color on, I'm pushing it back, I'm picking up the hue, I'm dropping it down, and she is the totally she's opposite, opposite right? <laughs> she, yeah, she's got her palette, and she mixes a color. And puts it and down. she puts just the right amount of medium into it, and she looks, and she mixes, and she looks, and she mixes, and then she puts it on and doesn't touch it again. <laughs> and it's like that puzzle piece thing I was yeah, talking right. about earlier, you know, like, I'm just fascinated by it, because my puzzle pieces never fit. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you're back here, though, in Brooklyn... Yeah, part, we're back time. the fall guys, and the winter and, and then maybe into the spring a little bit too. And then back to the woods in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Is it the woods? It's woodsy, yeah. yeah. It's, it's woodsy, but it's still five minutes from, you know, the 
good grocery store and the mm-hmm. liquor store and all the things that you need out in the woods. And is that just an effort to get to kind of get away from civilization so that yeah, you can kind of be know, free with your ideas? I don't think I would have finished that big painting had mm-hmm. I done it in the city. Mm-hmm. Because there's just so many distractions in the city. Hard, you know? yeah. And if you have to get groceries, like, all right, now I got to get dressed, right. brush my teeth, go out. You know, go out into the street, and immediately you're t- into this world of, like, you know, try not to get hit by the cab and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so I find, like, out in the country it's so beautiful because, like, it's just so quiet. Yeah. And it's just animals. And so you can go so into your world and you never really have to detach out of it, you know? Yeah. So I also find it making me a little crazy when I was there too long. Like what I was talking about earlier, you know, you go, I, I went so deeply into this world of this painting and the politics and the history that, like, I'd wake up thinking about it and go to bed thinking about it and realize, like, I hadn't called anybody in my family for three weeks. <laughs> yeah, and, you know. But that's fantastic to be that immersed. I mean, I love that feeling. I feel like, uh, you know, in, in the city, and, and you know, it, it's incredibly difficult to, to get there and stay there. And that sounds like it's an amazing setup that you've got. Yeah, it's really nice, you know, because then you come back to the city and you also realize other things, which is like, you have to be around people too. Right, you, know? you, appreciate <laughs> like that, you do yeah. need that contact with humans, <laughs> which the city is so great for. Because the other thing I found out there was I was, you know, reading the news and kind of like checking up with what's going on in the world. And it's just such a darker vision oh, of yeah. the world that you get from like your phone yeah. than it is the real world that you right. interact with with real people. And so I realized after a certain point, like, you're like, oh, it's still running. There are still buses and trains yeah, and like, people are. Look- I thought everybody was, you know, getting like locked up at this point. (laughs) And so then you come back to the, and I think that's also a really important thing I took from it is if you go out with technology, which I kind of have to do because that's the way the world works now, you do need to interact with real people to counteract that. (laughs) Like if you were just out there with nothing. Yeah. Social media is a weird thing. I mean, I I can't figure it like it's maybe it's, it's like your, your Seder paintings. Like it's, it's not entirely good. It's not entirely bad. I mean, not that paintings are good or bad, but like your, besides your, I'm putting this, I'm leaving. (laughs) That's it. I really expect praise when I show up. No, no, but you know, not picking sides, but the, the social media, it feels that. You know, I mean, it's maybe a necessary evil in some ways, and in some ways, it's fascinating, and you get exposure. I mean, I get to see what you're doing when I'm, you yeah, know, you're totally. In like we but... probably wouldn't have reconnected had it not been for social media. Yeah. You know, we'd have to like actually find the phone numbers, and, and that's just not yeah. <laughs> yeah. write you a letter, <laughs> yeah. figure out dearest Adam. <laughs> yeah, you have to find your address, <laughs> phone book. But, you know, one of the things I think uh, coming to the end here is something that I've been, and I know we've talked about it and I've talked about it with other people, is the idea of getting back into the idea of balance. Yeah. There's a certain things that we're not going to change. They're going to go that way, and that's fine. The best I think we can do is add our little counter, you know, to that. Not necessarily, like, as a fight, but no, though that's that. Cool. And this is this and giving not necessarily people the option to choose, you know, one thing or another, but just the idea like that's there and it exists. So the best thing we can do is just balance it out to make it a, a little bit less skewed in one way or another. Yeah, does that absolutely. Make sense no, it totally does. Because I think that's like if we were to analyze ourselves and put ourselves on the couch, we'd probably find that like part of the reason we do what we do 
was we felt the need to balance Absolutely. what we already had, you know? Yeah. It's like you're doing this. It's a crazy thing. It's like, what is it, 2016? Yeah. yeah. And we're like taking sticks with pig hair on them and oily dirt, and we're sitting there for hours making something. And that's mm. clearly Push. like a balance to something. Absolutely. Like, it's something that we need. Yeah. No, I was saying, because, yeah, I mean, we obviously didn't feel the need to, like, make fancier iPhones or anything, you know, that wasn't what was in our psyche. And, and those are going to exist, and great, but, again, yeah, we should do the other thing, because <laughs> that's what we do. Yeah, and it has a balance, too, and it's kind of intriguing, because when you take that thing that's been sort of, like, pushed off a little bit, or kind of disappeared and gone away for a while, that's actually where something new happens. You know, yeah. you don't come up with something different and surprising and interesting by doing exactly what everybody else is doing. Yeah. You know, you don't invest in the stock market like that. You don't go buy the one that everybody else just bought. Wait, what? Think, yeah, like that's like a good way to lose your money, right? You have to kind of be ahead. See, that's why I'm broke too. <laughs> but, uh, but the thing is, I think that's where the magic is, right? It's yeah. in that part that's been sort of like, for whatever reason, ignored. Because then there's like new treasures in there that nobody's dug up yet. Yeah. You know? Which I think is great for art students too, is to like go into all that stuff and trust their instincts and like not be told that what they're looking at is bad, you know? Yeah. Or like primitive or stupid or, you know, bourgeois yeah. <laughs> or whatever they say about it, you yeah. know? Um, Which actually leads me to this question. I wanted to sort of say that because I, I, I feel like you answered this in just our conversation, but. Um, do you think the visual arts are important right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think they're really It would have been kind of awesome if you had said no. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Not no. no. We have film now. <laughs> no, sorry. Yeah, uh, we have 24-hour news, and I think that really takes over yeah. where the paintings left off. You know? um, no, I think they're really important because they're, it's an art based in space, right? It's not an art based in time. You don't sit down and look at a painting and then it has a beginning and an end and you're finished. And then you listen to it again or read it again and it's not quite as good because you know what's going to happen. It's like it's a spatial art. Yeah. And so I think, to me, that's what I'm interested in anyway, is finding that way to put it out there in the world so people live around art and it shapes the world. Because to me, it's still the most magic. Like I love architecture and sculpture particularly yeah because they create this place that you live around that it changes your life it changes your pattern it can i mean really can i I think a lot of the time it's not thought through and i mean particularly i don't know what's going on in brooklyn the way that they're building and they're tearing down things (laughs) that it is it is but it's also i mean they're building things as quickly and inexpensively as possible yeah and there's No, no feng shui well, no there's no, there is no art to it, and there's no consideration of, of people and human scale, and, you know, it's... it's uh, and that's the thing, you know, like Kenneth Clark said that in one of his books, I think it was Civilization, yeah. which I thought was a great thing, you know, it's like, this is the record of who you are and your values. Yeah. So what does that tell you? I mean, it tells you your values are maybe artificially limited to economic constraints at yeah. that point, if you're building that crap, you know? Yeah. And so... For me being like the artistic Taliban, I probably shouldn't say that. Either. You're going to get FBI'd for this. Yeah, you should probably describe <laughs> yeah. it a different way. You should beep that maybe so you don't get on a watch list. But I think that's kind of our job, you know, is to come in and like raise the fist in the air and be like, no, we're standing up for yeah. a more complicated view of people here, you know? Yeah. You can't reduce them to like consumers or producers. Like, what the hell is that? I do both, you know? Right. Yeah. So I think that is true. Like, I think the visual arts, like, you can't escape them. They shape our world. It's just, it's going to be 
good or bad. I mean, that's like a very Clint Eastwood way to put it, you know, but it's <laughs> yeah. like, it is there. The visual arts just are a fact. And I think sometimes they're just like really poorly thought out. So I think they're like so important because like that's New York City. I mean, it's like a big mass of architecture and we live in it, you know? Yeah. So it's like super important. I think it's the most important. I think it's certainly more important than like TV dramas or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's possible, just like it's possible for, you know, glass and steel buildings to be beautiful and to consider, you know, the people, how people interact with them. I think, you know, maybe TV dramas occasionally transcend TV dramas and become really meaningful. I love some of them. They're wonderful. Yeah. And the same with glass and steel. It's like you can't blame the glass or the steel for the shape that they put it in. You know, I could. Or the lack of thought that they put into it. I mean, that's, you know... uh, Or the formulaic repetition of, like, the shapes and the squares. The boxing and the boxes and the boxes upon the boxes. And the boxes, yeah. And I think that's, like, our job, you know, because when you see a culture that brings visual art more intelligently or more creatively, let's just say that, into it, it seems like it makes people happier. Yeah. Not to say... We're also so radically inefficient that, you know, the efficiency of those structures and the way that they're built quickly and, you know, we're almost the antithesis of that. Oh, we're totally... It's like you even look at the psychology of like a square with a statue in the middle of it even, just something as simple as that. It creates a space. It draws you into the center. It has people wandering all around. And when you don't have that, you get a place where there's really not much to look at other than shopping. Yeah. Big surprise there. How did that end up (laughs) disappearing? You know, the shopping, a sidewalk that you can walk forward and back on. Not even in two dimensions all around a surface, but in like one dimension, forward and back, you know? And then you have like nowhere to sit. I mean, how, who designed that? Yeah. Like, I mean, that seems to me like a way to keep the homeless at bay or something. Well, I think but it is. But it's not like a way to create it, community, you know? I mean, that's exactly what it is, I think. I mean, when I remember visiting Spain, you know, being fairly young and, uh, like, when I was just old enough to be, like, out kind of on my own and uh, being in a piazza and just, there were, like, kids playing soccer. It was kind of late and it was dark. It was night. But there were so many people doing so many different things, and it, none of it—it it was none of it was like people trying to sell you stuff. I mean, there were maybe a couple of people wandering around, but like it was just about people living their lives and enjoying the space and enjoying the space together. And, and that, I mean, it was a really like mind-blowing thing. And I grew up in New York City, but there isn't there, you know, besides maybe Central Park, where everybody's kind of like on their jogging track or on their yeah. horse riding path. But that's a, like, that's yeah. a different experience because that is more or less a, 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 a bit of nature for people in the city. What well, also used to, I mean, Central Park when I was a kid shut down at night because you know, so you'd get killed if you went in. So but what you're saying is more fascinating because it is a piazza and it's still the same materials that you you live in, yet there's this comfort and this uh, you want to be there. What was designed for people? It was designed, it was for, designed yeah, yeah. for like bringing together a community. And yeah. I, I think uh, and people in tell a lot of these kind of architecturally, they get away from that. And I think it's uh, and it's so inefficient, right? Yeah. You look at that, and you're like, damn, we could cut that up with some more roads and oh get some God, condos this, in there. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which could happen. But it's wonderful that it's so inefficient. It does happen. <laughs> yeah, it does happen. Right. And I think inefficiency is such a beautiful thing because the minute you're inefficient. Now you've like opened up all kinds of possibilities. You yeah. Know? Every possibility but that one, which is like efficiency. You know? Right. Inefficiency is the most wonderful thing in the world. Like it's it's that's where freedom comes in. You know, now you can like with your art 
like painting that way too. I remember there was this movement that I think Jacob Collins and some of these guys did like slow art yeah. Oh, yeah, a yeah, while back. Yeah, and I yeah. love that idea because it's doing the this, same thing. Yeah, feeding off the slow food movement. Yeah, which is another cool one. Because yeah. you think about like slow art that way and it's such a great idea. Now you're not having to make the most efficient brushstroke. You're like just going for like maybe the most beautiful or interesting or exciting brushstroke, yeah. you know? And so all that possibility is there now. It, it seems like the efficiency part of it takes you out for what we do takes you out of the the idea of process and you falling in love yeah. with process you know because it becomes about the end and how to get there as quickly as possible as opposed to just being like well f- love the process just yeah, the, the yeah. in inundated in it's so easy to forget that it. it is and i think every once in a while like somebody like you would bring me kind of put me in check and not say like you gotta it would be a conversation that i would have with ted or somebody and then it makes me realize, like, oh, wait, you know what? I got to kind of love the time I put in, in mm. the studio by myself just working out these problems. I usually communicate yeah. that through a hug, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> a frothy cappuccino. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that Pounds is super of drugs, important, right? Because <laughs> that's that honesty factor also. Yeah. If you find yourself there and you're just fucking miserable with yeah. what you're doing it's probably a good sign that maybe you're not doing the right thing yeah. you know? or maybe you're like not doing something that's natural or that you really want to do like I always think that's kind of the best like the best barometer right it's like not even an external standard but if you're really like suffering and suffering and suffering just by like going in and painting a painting right, yeah. it's probably a bad sign you don't sign, need you know? to do that to yourself yeah. yeah you're doing exactly the wrong thing yeah, it's <laughs> like if you cannot wait to get in the studio and you can't you know you, you it like breaks your heart to leave that's yeah. that's the place you want to be that's the magic place yeah. I like yeah. that yeah Except, you know, half the time when the painting's not turning. <laughs> then there's no <laughs> Then you just, like, fall on the floor and cry and um, bore the people around you with your <laughs> complaints. Well, do you, do you have a, a website? And, and how do people get in touch with you? And where, yeah, is, how do they where see can they your, see your, 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 your Quebec wares? painting besides going to Quebec? Um, in my studio. <laughs> I put the address out there. <laughs> it's uh, stalkers. Yeah. Well, the website is adammillerart.com. Mm-hmm. So, uh, do, do you have any, do you have any, I mean, do you, do you work with galleries at all or? Anyone? Yeah, I have work with a couple now. I have work with, um, I think it's still hanging up at 38th street. I think between 7th and 8th, the Booth Gallery. Okay. They have a painting I finished recently is called... Paul, Paul Booth? Gallery? Paul Booth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Called The uh, the Bone Wars, which mm-hmm. is... It's a big one. It's about an 8-foot painting. Um, I've got some out at Richard D'Amato Gallery. Where's in that? Sag Harbor. Sag Harbor. New York. Okay. Out in Long Island. And I think that's it right now, actually. I think those are the only ones. There's not much out there now, actually. I've spent the last year and a half pretty much doing all commissions yeah Mm -hmm. so it's been you know it's a nice place to be but then on the other hand you don't i mean you do want your friends the other painters to be able to see your paintings i mean it's nice that your quebec painting will be in a public place that people can go visit it i know i should probably have a party before it leaves please yeah (laughs) throw my own opening (laughs) yeah why not So how do people find out about the party you're throwing? Uh, I'll I'll put it at um, adammillerart.com. No, I'll actually, uh, I'll invite people. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much for uh, enduring everything you've had to endure to come get yourself here. Oh, it was a lot of fun. It was good. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. This will be really inspirational to a lot of people. Including us. Yeah.
Oh, good. I hope it's not just all a bunch of rambling. uh, Not at all. Madness. Well, that's what all these things are. (laughs) That is the beauty of a podcast. You know, I think podcasts are the best thing in the world because you actually just hear somebody talking. It's so much more interesting than hearing somebody scripted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it just goes wherever it goes. And sometimes it's like trying to find your way through a maze. Sometimes it goes to a dead end and doubles back. But it's, you know, that journey is really interesting. And it tells you a lot about a person, just what they're interested in like what direction they want to go in yeah you do it tells you about yourself too yeah yeah because you're like oh wow you see all the little ways that you have similar experiences that you never would have thought of you know like i feel like in our group everybody brings up like what very similar to paint in the 90s and do that compared to now there's just like certain experiences yeah that then i remember you were talking to brian booth craig Mm -hmm. who's also out there in pennsylvania yeah not too far away yeah He's got an amazing studio set yeah. down there. He's doing great stuff. But uh, he talked about the same experience. And it's so fascinating hearing it from all these different people, you yeah. know, from like slightly different perspectives. But de- de- definitely similar, um, even kind of similar upbringings a lot of times. It's like, yeah, you kind of had the similar friends and kind of. Except that I never went into the woods with Ruskin. That's true. Oh, <laughs> now yeah. you're back I in the woods with that. Ruskin. I was just a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Adam, thank you so much. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Cheers. All right. All right. Ah, back to normal. To normal. To normal. To normal. To normal. I've uh, uh, echoed a lot, a lot on this. On this. And Something that I've been, and I know we've talked about it and I've talked about it with other people, is the idea of getting back into the idea of... Wait, what? talked about it and I've talked about it talked about it and I've talked about it talked about it and I've talked about it talked about it the idea talked about it and I've talked about it talked about it and I've talked about it talked about it and I've talked about it